Floor. Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Got a good show for you this week. The NCAA tournament is in full swing. Uh, awesome first weekend. Great games all over the place. I'm joined once again by the host of the Seeing Red Podcast, Troy Moriel. We're going to recap the first weekend, give you all the highlights you need to know, break down the action, set you up for the Sweet 16 here. We have a lot of interesting matchups coming up in the next couple of days, so be fun to check that out as well. Also, getting ready for baseball season. If you're a fantasy baseball guy, you have your draft coming up. I have a spot ready for you in the seventh inning stretch. You're joined by Alan Austin to preview the fantasy baseball season. We're going to talk about some sleepers, some draft strategy, guys to avoid, all that good stuff coming up as well. Pop culture is also back this week. We're going to dive into the world of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm going to be joined by my golf guy, Dandy Martin. He's also a huge Marvel fan. We're going to break down from here that show. That's coming up at the end of the podcast. But first, we're going to start with our opening tip. We're going to talk about some questionable looks for the NCAA last week, right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time here on the podcast. Talking a little about the NCAA, and they get some. There's some credit. They did a good job getting this tournament off. We had 31. Of, we had all but one of our games got played because of, one was the COVID issue with VCU. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But they did a good job there. But there were some issues to the NCAA last week. We had some looks that were not very frowning for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. One of the big social media controversies that came out last week was a look inside the weight room in the bubble for the women's tournament down in San Antonio. And obviously, no, all the teams for both the men's and women's tournaments are going to one place, one bubble to run this thing. The men are in Indy, women down in Texas. The men's weight room, good job on the NCAA short notice. Big sprawling facility, space style, all kinds of equipment. Make sure that the players can get what they need done. The women's weight room, they clearly cut some corners. We saw on social media, it could fit in one photo. It was a rack of dumbbells and yoga mats. That was it. That was all they provided for the women's tournament. And they got ripped to shreds, the NCAA, on social media about this. And it was such a bad look. We had all these sponsors. Dicks offered to donate equipment. Orange Theory Gyms offered to donate equipment. NCAA clearly dropped the ball there. There was less equipment given to the women's players in the swag bags, given to the people who make a tournament. We saw a photo of the men's thing. You see all this NCAA March Madness swag. You see John Thompson's book. You see all these sponsored products. The women got much, much less. The photos t- tell you all you need to know about the difference in swag bag quality. The other thing that was going on here, different levels of COVID testing, which the NCAA is running. You would figure, you know what? Standard, give them the best test. We want this event to be played. 
the men are getting the standard PCR tests. The women are only getting the antigen tests, which are the daily rapid tests. They are not as accurate. There are more false negatives with those as, than there are with the PCR tests. And that just says to the audience out there, we care more about the men's tournament than the women's tournament. It's blatantly obvious. NCAA like head Mark Emmert claimed this was an oversight, but that's really just pathetic. I mean, come on. You know exactly what you're doing here. They claim there's a bit of miscommunication because we had set these bubbles up, but they have given the men's tournament more attention for years. We know this because this is also the same tournament where there are photographers and press conferences, transcribers for all the men's action. The women's tournament does not get that until the, the Sweet 16. They do not want to give that much attention to it. And I get that, you know, if this is a business operation, you can say, okay, you can kind of say to the women's side, like, you know what, like the men's side made more money, but the NCAA is not a business. This is a nonprofit. This nonprofit is a billion dollars a year, and their job is to administer the championships that they host the sports in. The least you can do is give good weight rooms, good testing for both sides. Make sure that these events are properly staffed. The way it looks, and I know I have no ties to the NCAA. I have no inside knowledge of going on here. It feels like the NCAA tried to sneak a budget cut in here and say, okay, the men, we got to take care of them. We will give, we'll deal with the women's situation later. We'll give them like this for now. Maybe we'll sneak some more stuff in there. They kind of got changed to adding more stuff. Not a good look from the NCAA. You also have the movement from the players on the, on the men's side, like Geo Baker, promoting the idea that the players are hashtag not NCAA property. And this has been arguments going on for years now. We have this whole situation where the athletes in the revenue sports, like basketball, like football, are not getting compensated for their time, while the universities and the NCAA make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars off of their images. And the traditionalists are going, oh, they get academic scholarships. They don't have to pay to go to school, whereas my son Jimmy had to work three jobs to afford his education at my, at my local university. The compensation in terms of the scholarship is nice, but at the same time, the NCAA is using these players to make billions on TV rights. They're selling jerseys. They're selling shirts. They're selling tickets. They're getting all this stuff, and the players do not see one single dime of it. And this is not a first-world problem because not all these guys are going to the NBA, not going to the NFL, not all going to Major League Baseball. Many just trying to get through school, and they have big demands in their time. And, comp and you know, it's not just going to the game showing up. It's going to practice. It's a time in the weight room. It's still trying to be a student and take your classes. There's not much time in there for these student-athletes to actually, you know, have time to like take a part-time job and earn some money on the side to get things like gas or food or whatnot. And this is also where you see these outside entities fill the gap. Whereas the shoe companies, the boosters, they're giving these players money and it's against the NCAA rules. And we have the endless cycle of here's teens paying players on the side. They get caught, they get slapped on the wrist and then the cycle starts over somewhere else. 
you don't have all those problems if you let these guys get some sort of compensation for their hard work to sell your product because it is a product. Think about the way Geo Baker put it on Twitter. Geo Baker one on Twitter said Geo underscore Baker underscore one. The NCAA owns my name, image, and likeness. Someone on music scholarship can profit from an album. Someone on academic scholarship can have a tutor service. People who say an athletic scholarship is not enough. Anything less equal rights is never enough. I am hashtag not NCAA property. Consider that for a moment. If you're a student who goes to school on a music scholarship, you can sell an album, make some money. If you are a Rhodes Scholar candidate, you can be a tutor and make some money that way. If you are Geo Baker and you want to go to your hometown and run Geo Baker's basketball camp all the time, you can't because you're violating NCAA rules. That's a problem. Players should have opportunities to use their name and their image to get some money on the side. Not asking for a lot. Give them a fair compensation. They are basically employees the amount of time they're spending helping the schools. This movement's gaining steam. A lot of players were sharing on social media. There was buzz that maybe some of these players would get together and delay a tournament game as a more protest. It's not going away. The NCAA has a lot of problems on its hands, and they've got to figure these things out in due time. But we're, that's for another day. We'll talk about the NCAA tournament. We'll talk about the NCAA tournament now with Troy Moriello right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. The first weekend of March Madness in the books, and boy, it was a lot of fun. Joining me today, the host of the Seeing Red podcast, our, my companion through March Madness year, Troy Moriel is here. Troy, how are you? I'm doing okay, Mike. It's uh, great to have the madness back. It was a fun first weekend plus Monday, and I'm excited to break it all down with you. Yeah, I, I'm very pumped about this one, and I mean... My bracket, I fill. I usually fill it out in the post every year. I got to find it in here, but it's what it is. <laughs> Useless. All yeah, I got mine. Same, same here with mine. I won't rip it up, but, but same. Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> it, it is completely gone. I mean, mine was done pretty much after the first two days of the tournament, which is a lot of fun. I mean, I'm not going to the pool, but, you know, I'm enjoying the basketball. Yeah, same here. Uh, you know, Texas and Ohio State crushed mine right away and you know it, i guess in a way it makes it more fun because then you can kind of just enjoy the games and not have to worry about your own brackets so you know uh looking on the bright side of things it could always be worse i guess yeah it could be worse it could be a fan of ohio state but we'll get to them in a minute i want to start off here i think there's been some change in the schedule this year because of the covid situation with college basketball i think one they need to keep going forward we need all four first four games on the same day that was so much fun yeah, it was a, a great start to the tournament. You know, um, obviously, usually we do it with the Tuesday and the Wednesday, two games on each day. And the 16 seed games are never that entertaining, frankly. So you're really only getting the one game a night. Uh, Thursday night, you know, we get the really fun uh, Drake and Wichita State game going down to the wire. And then that goes right into the uh, amazing UCLA comeback versus Michigan State. It was really a nice, uh, you know, intro to March Madness, which was kind of fun, you know after the full two years almost without it. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot, having, having you know, basically wall-to-wall basketball from 
five to midnight as kind of a precursor for the uh, the main tournament. Yeah, because that doesn't really feel like the tournament the way they have it set up because you're watching one full game at a time. There's no flipping. There's no, okay, this game is boring. I'm going to go over here. You're stuck with potentially two 16s. And I know they love the national spotlight, but at the same time, I think you give two to Dayton, put two in another venue somewhere and have them play them on Wednesday and then start bring them in on Friday and you're good to go, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I really think, you know, we, we've talked about really throughout this uh, this pandemic has kind of started you know, some new, um, I don't want to say traditions, but, you know, innovations, I guess you could say, you know, in sports. And I think maybe this is one of them where the NCAA says, you know, maybe it's smarter to do it this way rather than the way we had been doing it for the past, I don't know, decade or so. Yeah, indeed. Let's get to the actual tournament. And we, the story of the tournament so far has been Oral Roberts, the Golden Eagles knock off Ohio State day one. Then they come back, they beat Florida day two. Max Amos, Smith has been a huge revelation. Kevin O'Banner, superstar team. And I got to say, they've been such a shock. And it's so fun to seeing them completely destroy the brackets across the country. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit I was I was rooting a little bit against them in that first game because I, I had Ohio State going so far. Uh, but, you know, how can you not root for them, you know, in their in their second round game, at least? You know, you want to see the the Cinderella team make a, make a little bit of a run there. And, yeah, you know, they have the two stars who are really there uh, entire team, it feels like. And, you know, when you have, you know, two star level players like that in the NCAA tournament, you know, you never know how far you can go if those two guys kind of get hot. And, you know, the NCAA tournament, that's the beauty of it. You know, anyone can beat anyone. We've seen 16s beat ones, although it's only happened once. And we've seen 15 seeds uh, beat two seeds now. You know, it, like I said, that's really just the beauty of this tournament. Anyone can get hot. Anyone can catch anyone on, you know, any day or any night, really. If a team like Ohio State has an off day like they had on Friday, uh, they can get they can get picked off by, you know, a lowly 15 seed like Oral Roberts. So uh, really, really fun to see that. And and um, like I said, that's 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 the best part of the NCAA tournament is these these Cinderella's coming out of nowhere. Yeah, because the one I forget who saw it says on Twitter, I mean, they a great point because the NCAA tournament is different than all the other sports. It's basically, this is. 67 game sevens and all you have to do is be hot that one day to win the game and this team did a good job takes up out of the league i mean they played oklahoma out of the league they lost oklahoma state by five they played wichita state they played arkansas they're getting the sweet 16 they led them by 10 at the half in fayetteville end up losing that game they also played well in another big non-conference game this team is not afraid of the big dogs that makes them a very live underdog next week yeah, definitely, and I think they were like the the fourth place team in in the Summit League, I yep. believe, going into the uh, the conference tournament. So, yeah, that's just the fun of it, and it's like you said, you know, this is not you know a, a series of games. You know, you're not playing a three game series or a five game series. You know, where the the favorites would you know be be favored in every game. Really, anyone could get anyone. Uh, you know, we we've seen it throughout this tournament. Aldeline Christian as well. Um, you know, Oregon State making a run. You know, UCLA obviously. So. We've, we've seen, you know, throughout the years that, uh, you know, on any given day or night, anyone can kind of get off anyone. And, and uh, fun to see it with Oral Roberts, for sure. Yeah, and the scary thing with them, too, is that I think Ace is only a sophomore. O'Banner is only a junior. So if they resist the urge, because I'm sure that the high major schools are come like, crawling down to Oral Roberts, down, down in, in Nebraska over there, Oklahoma, I believe it is, and say, hey, you know, why don't you play for us? If they resist that urge and stay in school, they could be a powerhouse next year. Yeah, and you also have to, you know, note the fact of their head coach as well. Um, you know, I believe the last 15 seed to make this run was Florida Gulf Coast, and then their coach uh, went to USC uh, and got a, got a pretty big job at USC. So, I mean, 
you know, that's, that's the also thing is maybe these higher majors. I, I know a couple of the vacancies have been filled already, but you know, you never know if, if their coach could, uh, could, you know, move, move up the ladder as well going into next year. Yeah, that, that's them. The other big story out of the first round was the VCU situation where we did not get through all the games. They had to no contest against Oregon because they had three positive COVID cases, about 48 hours span. From what I've been reading, it sounds like they think this happened at the A-10 tournament where they were in a hotel in Dayton where there was like a high school tournament going on. A lot of people weren't wearing masks in the lobby and unfortunate for them, but this is something the NCAA, I think this big warning shot them say, hey, you know, you got all these teams in the bubble. COVID's not going away. You got to be very careful here because still, these are the prime games of the tournament. You want to see anybody going no contest here. Yeah, and what frustrates me the most about that situation is it was almost, you know, entirely avoidable, I think you could say. You know, the NCAA had basically a full year to plan out what they wanted to do with this tournament to ensure that nothing like this would happen. And yet, you know, their plan was basically let's just kind of do everything as normal, not totally normal, obviously, but in terms of the scheduling, let's basically do everything as normal and just cross our fingers and hope that no team has to back out of this tournament. And obviously they, they got, I guess you could say kind of lucky that only one team uh, had to, had to back out really. And that they only had to cancel one game, but still at the end of the day, there was just no real plan put in place, which kind of bothers me. And it stinks for a team like VCU who, you know, has made a run deep in this tournament, who knows what they could have done this year. Um, I don't understand why the NCAA didn't push up the end of its regular season, you know, and, and make, every conference and its regular season, maybe a week early and then play the conference tournaments a week early and then do selection Sunday. And then, you know, take a 10 day pause right there, you know, to, to really quarantine these teams to make sure that nothing like this would happen. I think that was, you know, just too obvious of an answer. I don't know why they went with it. I guess maybe the TV stuff, but still, you're still having selection Sunday and you're still, you know, having these conference tournaments, you're just doing them a week earlier um, I think that would have been fair. Obviously, it would have been, you know, a longer layoff for some teams to, to, you know, take off for 10 days, let's say. But, you know, in the effort, in the, um, you know, hopes of having a full tournament, I think that would have been the smart thing to do instead to just kind of go in, like I said, and, and, and hope that no teams would get, you know, sick or no teams would have any issues. I, I don't like that that was their, their plan, quote unquote. So it's, it stinks for VCU for sure. And it's, it's a big uh, egg on the NCAA's face. Yeah, I also think part of the issue here, too, is that I think the deadline for the replacing teams was definitely was way too early because six o'clock on Tuesday and there were still a lot of teams are still in the middle of their seven day like run up to the tournament. I mean, you have these four teams on standby, like would it have been that hard to bring them to the bubble for like the, the couple of days. And then like if you get to the end of the end of the week and nobody's needed, you say, OK, sorry, guys, here's like and give the schools a little compensation for their time and say and give these kids an experience to at least, you know, do something here as opposed to Louisville, who was the first team out like sitting at home, they obviously chose not to go to the NIT. And then I'm sure they're sitting there on Saturday when this news comes out, very frustrated that we could have been in this tournament if they give us a little more time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, VCU, I believe, played in the... in The, um, the very last game. Yeah, on, on <laughs> Sunday. Yeah, and then, like you said, I mean, 48 hours later, they're, okay, everything's clear. We're all good to go. Well, that's not, you know, how this virus works. We've kind of all figured that out over the last year. You know, you can't just do a, do a test, you know, 48 hours later and say, all right, you know, we're good. Uh, let's, let's play on with all 68 teams as normal. Um, yeah, it was just very short-sighted in general by the NCAA. I, I don't understand why they couldn't have, have done more of a buffer in between the conference tournaments and the first round of the, uh, of the NCAA tournament. It just, it, it wasn't good planning at all by them. 
No, I mean, I and as you know, I, I took some shots at the NCAA at the top of the show because the way they've handled some things over the past couple weeks has not been good. This was probably le- relatively low on the scale of stupidity of the NCAA, but this one was not not a good look for them. Yeah, it's it's um you know it's kind of par for the course with them, and it's a it's a shame, like we said, that 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 VCU has to kind of be the uh, the team that's hurt the most by it. Yeah, speaking of teams that were hurt by poor NCAA decisions, this is on the basketball court though. Loyola Chicago. Eight seed, as we talked about in the, in the bracket reaction show, top 10 team in the metrics and the net and the Ken Palm. NCAA selection committee says basically, you know what? You play in the Missouri Valley. You didn't really play anybody. You didn't beat anybody. You're an eight seed. They end up playing Illinois. They beat Illinois, knocked one of the highest teams in the country out of the tournament. And this is something I just don't get. And they never figure this out. The committee is that when you seed a team incorrectly, and they should have at least a, a line or two up on the on there. I can understand maybe make them like a six or something because you're not sure about their metrics, but. You're not only hurting them, you're hurting the team they play against. It was like got a much tougher draw in the second round than they should have had. Yeah, that was, you know, like you said, really unfair to, to both teams to make that uh, second round game. I think that could have really been, you know, a sweet 16 uh, type game with Loyola Chicago and Illinois where those two teams are at. And like you said, you know, if you look at the metrics, if you look at the net, if you look at the Kedpom, Loyola Chicago is a, is a top 10 team in the country. So that's why, you know, I, I saw a lot of people saying this was, you know, a shocking upset or a stunning upset. I don't think so. You know, Loyola Chicago has been a top 25 team all year long just because their seed didn't really reflect that uh, doesn't make that some sort of a, of a shocking, you know, upset in the NCAA tournament, you know, like some other upsets that we've seen uh, even this, you know, this year alone. So yeah, you know, it's, it's a bummer for Illinois because they got a really tough draw. Um, I mean, you're always going to play a decent team in the second round, obviously, but to play a team like Loyola Chicago that I, I think is, you know, a perennial top, 20 team, I guess you could say this season, um, you know, kind of a shame for them, but they obviously didn't get it done either. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of the bad job that like the committee did back when Wichita state was undefeated was the one scene. And then they got Kentucky as an eight and yeah. Kentucky's mm-hmm. metrics are so much better. They just played a hard schedule and they were like, well, that's how we view it. And they basically stacked every top team in that region and try and take, basically give the Ramblers, the heart, the shockers, the hardest path possible. And they did not make it, but Loyola Chicago gets through. I mean, this is not like a Colgate situation where they somehow gain the net with their schedule, but the metrics for Ken Palm said, they're not so good. They're a 14. This team should have been at least a five, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I agree. You know, a five or a six seed for sure. And like, like I mean, that that kind of speaks to, to what I said earlier. You know, that should have been, you know, a sweet 16 type game for Illinois to have to get through. Uh, definitely not a second round game for them. And um, I mean, I mean, you don't want to make too many excuses for Illinois. They got They got beat pretty handily and um, you know, they didn't play their best game. They probably played their worst game of the season on, uh, on Sunday, but, but still that, that game take came too early in the tournament for sure. Yeah. I also got to, uh, we, we both have to eat some crow here on Syracuse. <laughs> Neither one of us thought this should be in the tournament. Although I did say, would I be shocked if they won games? No. And here they are again, in the sweet 16, they beat San Diego state, probably the worst game the Aztecs had all season. They, they beat West, they hang out against West Virginia. Buddy Bayheim makes all the, makes another five threes in the game. They shoot very well from the outside. And once again, Syracuse now in that Midwest region, which really is wide open right now. Syracuse has a, a game against Houston. I think if they can get that, they have a good shot to make them run the final four. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's hard to explain um, with Syracuse. You know, they're, they're certainly not on the the level of national relevance. I think you could say that they were. Um, you know, in the, in the nineties and the mid two thousands, and even the early 2010s, I think you could say, uh, since joining the ACC, really, they haven't been on that level. 
yet, you know, you look up and this is now three of the last five sweet 16s that they've been in um, all as a double digit seed. Obviously they just, they continue to make these runs, these kind of unexpected runs. I guess we should have seen it coming last week, you know, cause it, it just feels like every single year, this team is on the bubble. They're one of the last teams into the tournament. And then they make this type of run to the sweet 16 or in 2016, obviously making that run to the final four. So, you know, I, I, I wish I could come up with some way to explain it. I think, you know, one thing that you can say about it is they play that zone and the zone, you know, if you aren't defensively motivated, I guess you could say, or if you're not, you know, you know, hyped up defensively, um, it's not a very effective uh, defense, you know, and, and maybe it's a little bit easier to be motivated and to, you know, be playing your best defense uh, in a, in a, you know, a NCAA tournament first or second round game against San Diego state and Wichita state, than a game in the middle of January on a Tuesday night against Pitt. So, I mean, that's maybe the only thing that I could, could say with Syracuse, you know, I, I, I didn't watch every one of their games this year, but I, I watched enough of them that, you know, when you're, when you're more motivated on the defensive end, I think that has a lot to do with it uh, when you're more active and, and, but, you know, this just happens every year with them. It feels like where they're, they're a double digit seed into the sweet 16. Yeah. I think one other thing about that zone, it's also interesting. It's not even them with the bring up the intensity. It's just the fact that these teams don't see it because not a lot of teams play zone predominantly. A lot of them will do it occasionally, but not going to sit there in a two, three, the entire game. And if you're a team that plays them, if you like, you find out, let's say like, who was, you know, say San Diego State found out on some, Sunday they were playing yeah. Syracuse on Friday, and they had four days to get ready for it, which is not something easy to ask. Imagine what it's like for Bob Huggins, West Virginia. You have less than 48 hours to teach your guys how to combat a 2-3 zone, and they did a pretty good job. They just couldn't overcome it. The issue with Syracuse is usually that second weekend because then you have basically a full week to get ready, and you have this week Kelvin Sampson has a week to help his guys run them through zone drills, tell them how to beat the zone, tell them where to put the guy in the high post, how to find that guy. This is the spot where if you're a Syracuse fan, you're like, if you get through this one, you feel like you have a good chance to get to the final four. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a great point about that. You know, in that, in that game against West Virginia, in the first, I don't know, 15 minutes or maybe even first half, I guess you could say West Virginia really struggled to, to figure that out. They did kind of, you know, figure it out by the second half, but it was just too late. That speaks to your point. You know, these teams, they don't know, they, not that they don't know how to play against them, but they just do it so rarely that it takes them a while to kind of get used to it, you know, especially playing a team on 48 hours notice like West Virginia did. It just takes them too long to, to, you know, get their rhythm offensively. And by then Syracuse is able to hold on to the lead that they built in that game against West Virginia. So that, that definitely speaks to your point about the, the preparation against the zone. Yeah. The analogy I'm, I'm going to come up with is this might be a bad analogy. Let's say like you're, you work in like a restaurant and you have the pastry chef and also you're asking him to like work the grill for you. He might struggle with it at first, but eventually he'll get it. It's like he needs more time to figure it out. Yeah, and, um, you know, in that analogy, you know, by, by then, you know, the, the customers have already left and, and they, you know, <laughs> they've, run, they've run out of time. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good, good analogy, though. You know, it, it just takes them some time. But a lot of times when you're playing Syracuse in the tournament, it, it just takes a little bit too long to, to figure that out, yeah, unfortunately, that- for teams. It did. That Midway's region was a fascinating region because there was just pure chaos in there. Another thing that was a big surprise out of there, the Cade Cunningham experience was just a complete flop because he basically had minimal impact in both those games. Oklahoma State's gone. Oregon State's juiced him out of the gym in the second game. And I have to say, like, I know this is what Cade went back to regular season Cade, where Cade usually struggles the first half, makes bigger plays in the second half. He's not was not the same guy in the Big 12 tournament, in the tournament where he was dominating from the jump. But 
Mm-hmm. It's nothing against Kate because Kate's going to go to the NBA to be a superstar because he's got all the tools to do it there. But Kate in the NCAA tournament was a very, was a very, very, very disappointing thing. Yeah, he just he didn't have it in, in uh, either one of their games that they played. You know, like you said, it won't impact his his NBA stock whatsoever. He's still almost certainly going to be the number one overall pick in um, whenever the NBA does their draft over the summer. So that you know that that's you know notwithstanding, but. You know, it's like we said earlier, you know, anyone can have an off day. Anyone can, any team can have an off day. Anyone can have an on day. That's kind of the beauty. And, you know, in some way, the other side of the coin with the NCAA tournament is that, you know, these star players, we saw with Io uh, Desunmu as well on, on Illinois, you know, they can have an off day. They can play their worst game of the season and it's all over for them. We saw that with Cade Cunningham. He just happened to not have it in the, in the you know, the one weekend basically that Oklahoma State was playing. And, you know, it's a shame that we don't get to see them playing further and we don't get to see him playing further, but that's kind of, you know, what, you know, I guess what you could say about the NCAA tournament throughout its history is, you know, that there, there is no seven game series. Like you mentioned, it's, it's a one game, you know, one night, one day opportunity. And if you don't have it for those 40 minutes, unfortunately you're going to get bounced and uh, you're not going to look back fondly on your experience. No, they don't. And I do think it also segues nicely here because the story of the weekend, besides the underdogs, like your oral, besides Oral Roberts and stuff like that, the Pac-12 had a hell of a tournament. I mean, they went 9-1 over their 10 games. Oregon got the no contest, but for their five teams at the Sweet 16, the most, they have a quarter of the Sweet 16 field, the most teams by far of any conference in the country. I don't think anybody outside of Bill Walton could have said that this was going to happen. Yeah, I saw a lot of people saying uh, this is, you know, Bill Walton's dream, or Bill Walton was uh, was right all along with the uh, with the Conference of Champions it's kind of funny, you know, when we watched that first um, uh, first first four game on Thursday night, UCLA over Michigan State. That kind of kind of set the tone for the entire weekend with the Pac-12 being great and the Big Ten, um, you know, kind of slipping up as we'll get to in a second, I'm sure. You know, but but with the Pac-12, um, I, I personally, I'm not gonna gonna act like I saw this coming, but I did think people were a little bit underrating the Pac-12. I think that they had some teams, you know, Oregon. Um, uh, UCLA, USC, even Colorado, who got bounced, I thought was a really strong team. And then Oregon State is just playing outstanding basketball right now. They had some teams this year for sure. And it's, you know, playing on the West Coast, not getting that exposure, you know, playing games at 11 o'clock at night. No one's watching these teams. Um, I I will toot my own horn, though. You know, I I, like we we talked about how terrible our brackets were uh, throughout, you know, throughout the entire uh, or throughout the start of the show. My uh, West region, you know, bottom half of the West region, USC and Oregon, I had it. So, you know, not many people had those two upsets, but at least I had that one uh, with the two Pac-12 teams. So I, I will I will say I, I lost three of my four final four teams in the first weekend, but I did out of my entire tournament. That was the one thing that went well is that I had uh, USC and Oregon facing off in the Sweet 16. Good job, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you got you got that West region down there, the bottom half of it. And I will say, I had Oregon was very impressive the way they just dismantled Iowa. That game, I love the fact that they said, okay, Luca Garza, you can get your 36 points. We're going to shut the rest of your team down. The rest of the squad shot 26%, and that Oregon won by about 15 points. So that's a good, good coach job by Dane Alban, who's not getting enough respect in this country. He's a great coach. No, and I don't think Oregon as a whole is getting enough, I don't want to say respect, but, you know, they're just – they weren't getting enough notoriety. I guess you could say respect as a seven seed. I think that this team, when when fully healthy with their entire you know team in place, which they have right now, 
they're a top 15, top 20 team in the country. And I, I really believe that. I told you the other day, you know, I picked them to go to the final four. I don't know if they're going to beat Gonzaga. That was more of just a, you know, a guess there, but they are a, a, you know, obviously sweet 16. I think that they can be an elite eight level team. Um, you know, Chris Duarte is a star. I think that if he was playing on the East coast, he would be one of these, you know, household names in college basketball. And I think he's becoming one now to maybe the more casual fans, but they got a really talented team in Oregon. They got my guy, LJ Figueroa from St. John's. We're happy to see him doing well. He had a great game yesterday. They got uh, Richardson, Omarori as well from Rutgers. They got a lot of talented players on that team. They're one of the most talented teams in the country when they have everyone healthy. Their problem was they just weren't healthy enough for this season. But still, they were the best team in the Pac-12 in the regular season. And as I said before, I think the Pac-12 was a lot better than people thought that it was this season. And I think we're, we're obviously seeing that throughout the first weekend of the tournament with, with uh, you know, a quarter of the Sweet 16 field. Yeah, they also the Oregon also had an issue where they had so many like a really lengthy COVID pause in the middle of the season. They kind of had some rough shape when they came back. They're peaking in the form now. Another mm-hmm. thing I want to throw out here: USC's dominant performance. The thing I have to ask coming out of the game is this: like, what the hell was that out of Kansas? Mm-hmm. Literally, <laughs> this is the worst performance I've ever seen Kansas have in the NCAA tournament. They, they were not. They literally got punched in the mouth by USC. Just never got off the mat in that game. It was so bad. This is the second tournament in a row this happened to them because remember 2019, Auburn ran them out, of the, shot them out yeah. of the gym in the second in the round of 32 there, and that's something. You're a Kansas fan, I know that was a bad matchup because they had the bigs, but they got torched on the outside. They have the lingering NCAA tournament like invest, NCAA investigation hovering over them from the Adidas scandal. Bill Self, it might be in some hot water there, and mm-hmm. you got to wonder like, is Kansas really on the way down here? Because I think that. This is not a good look on them to just basically give up like like 15 minutes into, turn, into a second round game. Yeah, and I I think as you as you said, you know, it's their worst. I think it is their worst NCAA tournament loss of all time last night. Um, funny story about that, you know, it was that was a late night game. Obviously, my friend uh, texts me with uh, I want to say about 15 minutes to go, and he says, you know, at what point is it is it safe for me to to go to bed and 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 shut this game off? And I go, well, if they're still up by you know by 15 at the nine minute mark. Uh, I, I would think you're good. I think at the nine minute mark, it was up to like 25 points, yeah. almost 30. So yeah, I mean, Kansas just never responded. I think like you mentioned, we were all kind of waiting for them to, to make at least something of a run. I know that Kansas wasn't, you know, as, as we usually expect with Kansas, but man, they just, they got punched in the mouth and just never really woke up in that game. Yeah, that was a really, really bad look. They lost by 34, which is, as you said, the worst loss in Kansas tournament history. I know Bill Self is not losing his job tomorrow, but at some point here, you got to get a little better results here because this is now, like I said, two tournaments in a row where they just laid an egg. Yeah, and they they have that one uh, NCAA tournament or NCAA championship uh, from a couple of years ago or over a decade ago. But outside of that, it's been a lot of disappointment for Kansas and a lot of earlier exits than you would want. They're just... I don't know what it is, but, you know, we talked about Syracuse always making those runs. It feels like Kansas is always uh, kind of getting knocked out maybe a little bit earlier than they would hope. I know I, get the, I, I have Jayhawk fans who are angry when I say this, but no coach, in my opinion, college basketball does less with more than Bill Self. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great point. They, they're always, you know, a top four seed, I guess, or a top five seed, I yep. guess you would say. But they just never seem, you know, they, they like I said, they have the title. They did make, I believe, the championship during the uh, Anthony Davis uh, Kentucky year, but Outside of that, they just they haven't you know been this consistent you know Final Four type team that I think they they have the talent to be like you mentioned every single year. 
just, just I based that more on the fact of like you see how many lottery picks come through Lawrence, yeah. and mm-hmm. they, all the talent that comes to that program, they have I think in self time I think three Final Fours, one championship. That's not enough in my opinion. The amount of talent he has. No, absolutely. Yeah, I I agree 100 percent with that. Yeah, let's go to the down teams here, and obviously we'll start with the Big Ten, which got nine teams in, one is left, just Michigan, and they were given a big push by LSU last night in the in their one eight second round matchup. Everybody else went out early. Illinois, we talked about the bad draw. Ohio State, Purdue didn't even make it out of the first round. Michigan State choked in the first four. Teams like Wisconsin, Maryland, they about, went about as far as they could given their draws, but. This is a brutal showing out of the Big Ten, and this is a league that's been basically dying to get another champions. They haven't had one since 2000. This is a very bad year for the Big Ten tournament. Yeah, and, you know, I, we, we all heard the talk basically all, you know, all season since November, you know, that this was the Big Ten's year. This was the, the greatest conference in the, the history of the, of the sport in the Big Ten. We, we saw bracketologists picking the Big Ten to get, you know, 11, 12, 13 teams in the tournament. Um, I think all of that kind of looks silly now in, in, uh, you know, in retrospect with, with uh, how that conference performed in the first weekend, I, I you know, I'm not going to say that the big 10 was full of, of mediocre teams. I think obviously, you know, Illinois, Ohio state were very good teams this year. They just happened to get picked off, but it, it's not, you know, when you lose eight of your nine teams in the first two rounds, that's not, you know, just a coincidence. That's a, that's a trend at that point um, with, with that conference. And, you know, I, I will say this, the lack of, of non-conference play, had to play a role in that in somewhat that you're playing a majority of your games against conference teams, you know, maybe some of these teams, you know, picking off other teams uh, weren't as impressive as, as we thought. Um, But, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of par for the course with the big 10. Like you said, we, we've seen this time in and time out with them, uh, you know, like losing games early or getting teams knocked out early, obviously not having a champion, you know, since, since uh, in over 20 plus years now, you know, it's I, I I I would say I feel bad, but I really don't feel bad for them because of how much they got they got hyped up during the season. And uh, you know, it's kind of kind of funny. You know, as a Big East fan, I will say this: we got two teams in the Sweet Sixteen. The Big Ten only got one, so uh, I'm happy about that as well. And I, I will say this: you know, you can kind of almost say it's the same thing about the Big Twelve as, as well. The Big Twelve is kind of going under the radar. Oh yeah, uh, as another conference that really really did not perform well in that first round. Had a lot of teams go out early. Um, you know, obviously Texas, Oklahoma State, a lot of teams lost that should not have lost. Kansas, as we already talked about, one team in the uh, in the um, Sweet 16 as well. You know, that's that's a conference that the Big Ten is taking all the heat right now. But the Big 12 was was talked about on the same level as the Big Ten really all season long. And now both of them have just just one team left and it's their one seed. Um, you know, who would have thought at the at the, the start of this tournament, if we were talking a week ago, if, if we would have done an over under on how many. How many Big 12 and Big uh, Big 10 teams are in the Sweet 16? I wonder what that number would have been set at because it ends up being two. Yeah, I think we would have said probably around like seven and a half because we would have said probably half don't get knocked out. They, they had yeah. one, the, both the one seeds made it. Two of the one seeds made it. Everybody else did not. Yeah, it's 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 crazy to, to, to think that, you know. And, and, I mean, Baylor, I think, will make a run. But, you know, Michigan is kind of the consensus, like, weakest of the uh, of the one seeds. And they got a tough, tough Sweet 16 game coming up. So, we could not even see a Big Ten team in the uh, in the Elite Eight, maybe. Yeah, that's a scary thought for Big Ten fans. And I think also, it turns the Big Ten, another emblematic game that started flowing the radar here, Rutgers collapsed against Houston. Like, oh my God, this team was up by 11 with four with five minutes to go. Get, got, just basically tried to take the air out of the basketball the rest of the game and got scored 14-2 down the stretch and lose that game. That's a brutal finish for Steve Peichel. Yeah, and, it's, and it makes it even worse. I mean... 
it would have been really cool to see Rutgers and Syracuse in the uh, in the Sweet 16 as a local matchup. I, I don't particularly love either one of those uh, programs, but you know it would have been really fun to see that. And if you're Rutgers, it, man, it's just a missed opportunity for you. And, you know, you look at that bracket right now, the Midwest, as we said, has, has just totally, totally opened up with uh, Loyola, Chicago and, uh, and uh, Oregon State and then Syracuse. You know, man, if, if you if you're Rutgers are you're thinking, you know, we had a game against Syracuse who obviously is beatable. I'm not saying that, you know, they would have they would have got right by Syracuse, but a game against Syracuse and then a game, you know, potentially against an eight seed or a 12 seed in the elite eight for a chance to go to the final four. I mean, just such a missed opportunity for them. As you mentioned that big lead and they just, they, they, they just got too conservative down the stretch there. It's a heartbreaking finish for them uh, for sure. It's, it was a good season for them, but man, it's like, like we said, that's just the perils of the NCAA tournament, you know, losing games like that down the stretch when, when you were in control, basically the entire way. Not only that, they had beaten Syracuse in the regular season already, so they had already seen that zone and knew how to beat it. So, like, you would have had a yeah. – I think they would have gotten the Elite Eight if they got there. Yeah, and then, like we said, that Elite Eight matchup, you know, I mean, Illinois – or Loyola, Chicago, and then Oregon State maybe, you would have at least liked your chances in that as opposed to going up against a one seed or something like that. So, it's it's a real bummer for, for Rutgers and, and their fans. I mean, I, I think that that program is on the upswing for sure with Steve Peichel, but – um. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 a missed opportunity for sure, and what was supposed to be a dream season for them, and it was a strong season for them for sure to get an NCAA tournament win for the first time in forever. But still, uh, you feel like it could have been a little bit more for them. Yeah, indeed. Let's let's do quick like a little quick rapid fire wrap up the first round here. Give me which team you think had the best week. We're gonna take the the Cinderellas off the table here. Obviously, they're for thrilled to still be here. So, aside mm-hmm. of the team we thought might be here, who do you think had the best week? All right, are we are we gonna count? We're not gonna count UCLA as a Cinderella. Correct? No, I'm counting okay. more like the like the mid Cinderellas. Yeah, so let's. I'm gonna say UCLA then. I mean, I mean, you know, a team that 11 seed, um, you know, comes into to the first four down big against Michigan State. They rally against Michigan State. They beat Michigan State. They really just dominated BYU. I picked BYU to beat them. I thought BYU was kind of on that same level as the uh, the Pac-12 schools where. They weren't getting as much respect because they played on the uh, on the West Coast. I thought BYU was going to play a lot better in that game. UCLA really dominates, and then they get a good draw, I think, against Abilene Christian. I, I would have really liked to see UCLA against Texas, but um, they still take down Abilene Christian and now making a Sweet 16 as an 11 seed and uh, playing, I believe, uh, Alabama in the uh, in the Sweet 16. I'm going to say UCLA. You know, it was kind of an unexpected route. I think also if you want to stick in the Pac-12, uh, I don't know if you were going to say this, but in the Pac-12. Uh, Oregon State as well, you know th- those those two teams, kind of two unexpected Pac-12 runs to the uh, to the Sweet 16 as double-digit seeds. Man, Oregon State too, they've just caught fire. A team that shouldn't have even really been in the NCAA tournament, and I think has won now, I believe, five consecutive like like do or die games. Uh, really incredible story for the, for them as well. So if I'm if I'm picking a one and one A, it's the two Pac-12 teams. It's UCLA and it's Oregon State. Yeah, I'm going to go with Villanova as my team that had the best week here because everybody in America was saying they're going down. Winthrop's going to take them down. They've lost one game. They're not to say that Colin Gillespie. Jay Wright has them this week 16 again. They And yes, I get they caught a break. They're not having to deal with Purdue. They got North Texas, who's not nearly the same capable team. But there's still a lot of talent on that team. They're going to give Baylor a run for the money. I don't think they're going to win that game, but I think good job by Jay Wright getting them there. Yeah, and and we talked about this a little bit last week during the uh, during the the show that we did right after Selection Sunday. You know, people were writing off Villanova 
I think not really looking at the two games that they lost without Colin Gillespie. They lost on a tip-in at the buzzer against uh, Providence on the road. And then in the Big East tournament, lost to Georgetown on free throws in the final seconds. It's not like they got blown out and looked terrible in their two losses heading into the NCAA tournament. They just happened to lose two close games down the stretch. So this Villanova team, like you said, they got a really good draw, obviously not having to play um, Purdue and, and having the, you know, I, I mean, I thought Winthrop was a little bit better than they played in that game for sure, but they did get a good draw, but here they are still in the, uh, still in the sweet 16. Yeah, they are still here. Let's go the way. Who had the worst week? I and mean, I think there's a lot of candidates here. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would want to say like Ohio state just because, because of, you know, how disappointing that was. Um, yeah, I was actually, before we talk about Rutgers, thinking about Rutgers as well, because of the opportunity that they have, but I, I guess I'll say Ohio state and their, their bad, bad loss to uh, or Roberts. I mean, like we, we talked about it before. It's the, it's the beauty of the tournament, but then the other side of the coin, it's a team like Ohio state that, you know, had aspirations to go to the final four. I picked them to go to the final four and, um, you know, now they're, they're out in the, uh, in the round of 64, not even winning a game. So I would have to say Ohio state just, just, you know, losing to a team like Oral Roberts, where if they played them a hundred times, they'd probably beat them 95, but they happened to to play one of the five that uh, went, went the other way for them. And uh, a team that had real championship aspirations that unfortunately falls well short of any of those. I think for me, number one with a bullet is Texas. Because Texas, what they did against Abilene Christian was a disaster because this team won the Big 12. They won a bunch of big games all season long. They come into the tournament red hot. They lose to Abilene Christian, who gets run out of the gym by UCLA the next game. So that makes that loss look even worse. And Shaka Smart comes in the year on the hot seat, gets himself off a little bit by his performance and win the Pac-12. Right back on it. They still have not won a game in the tournament since Shaka Smart took over there. And he's going to have to win a couple next year to keep that job. Yeah, and what, what kills you if you're if you're a Texas fan is Abilene Christian didn't even play that well in that game. They shot like thirty percent, I think, from the field in that game. It was just a it was a terrible game to watch. It was it was a it was a disgusting game to watch, and to lose it on free throws at the end, and not even fouling a guy, fouling a guy going up basically on on the, the like a putback uh, to lose that game that way is just such such a a letdown for Texas, another team that I thought was going to the Final Four, and and another team that again if you, if they played that game against Abilene Christian. And if Abilene Christian shoots 30%, I bet that Texas wins that game, you know, 98 out of a hundred times. Again, just happened to be one of the, the two that uh, Abilene Christian would have got through. So yeah, a real bummer for Texas and uh, Shaka Smart still looking for that first NCAA tournament win. Yeah. I'm also going to put Kansas right underneath them too, because the no show against against the USC after they got hit in the mouth, but that's really bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a, uh, Another one, a team that just, you know, another Big 12 team that just didn't really respond to, uh, we, we, we talked about it before, yeah. a team that just didn't really respond. All right, let's get set up here. We'll do a quick little, like, swing around the Sweet 16 here. We'll go region by region here. West region, we have Gonzaga against Creighton and the USC-Oregon game. Fitting, un- like, typical luck for the West, where they finally get three good basketball teams in the West region. It's in Indianapolis. None of, the, yeah. none of the fans out there can see it. So now we get these three teams here. Is there anybody in here beats Gonzaga? I, I still think that the winner of the second games, they give them a run for their money. I, don't, I still didn't go in the final four. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, as, as John Rothstein says, you know, this is still the, the Gonzaga invitational and they yeah. are the, obviously the overwhelming favorite until someone actually knocks them off. I think Creighton can, can give them a game. I don't think Creighton will be able to, to hang with them. Um, but it, you know, Creighton, we know they shoot the three ball exceptionally well. If they are on, if a guy like Marcus Zigorowski, Mitch Balock are on, Creighton can give them a game. I just I don't know if they'll hang with them. And then 
obviously I picked Oregon to beat them. So I, you know, you've heard what I said about Oregon. I, I think that they're a top 15, top 20 team. So that'll be a fun one as well. As of right now, Gonzaga is still the overwhelming favorite, but they will be challenged. And I, I think both of these games, I think there will be a moment where you say, all right, maybe, you know, maybe they can get picked off here. Maybe they can get upset here. I, I don't know when it's going to come. It might happen in, you know, the first 10 minutes of the game and then they're on cruise control the last 30. But I, I think in both of their, you know, in their sweet 16 and then assuming that they play in the elite eight, that game as well, there will be a moment where you say Gonzaga could lose this game. So who is your regional final then? You have Gonzaga over who? Well, I have Gonzaga over Oregon. Um, like I said, I, I picked Oregon on my bracket just just to say, but I, I think it's gonna I I think it's gonna be Gonzaga over Oregon though. I agree with you there. Also, Creighton will be able to score with with Gonzaga. They'll be able to stop Gonzaga. That's be their problem. Yeah, exactly. I just I just don't know. You know, I don't know if they'll be able to hang with Gonzaga on the defensive end. Yeah, South Region. We got Baylor, Villanova. That's probably one of the more underrated matchups this week. Lee is going to see if Jay Wright. That rest of that team still pretty talented. See if they can give Baylor a run for that money. And then the bottom there. We have Oral Roberts against Arkansas, the regular season rematch to see if they if the Golden Eagles can get revenge for blowing that 10-point lead in Fayetteville. I think this is still Baylor's to lose, in my opinion. I think, what do you think? Yeah, I um, I think Baylor will get through, you know, Villanova, kind of like the other matchup we just talked about. I don't know if if Villanova has, you know, enough on the offensive end, really, to, to, to hang with with Baylor and their, their three-point shooting. Uh, they're just, in, you know, I, I underrated Baylor big time going into this tournament. I thought that they were going to get picked off in the in the second round, uh, actually. I did, I, did, I did not think that they were going to go very far. They've, you know, proven me totally wrong. I, I think that they'll get by um, Villanova for sure. I think it's still their region to lose. But then on the bottom half of that region, you look, if you're Arkansas, you know, you got to be, you know, counting your lucky stars that you're finally back in the Sweet 16, and you've got a matchup against a 15 seed. I mean, I know that it's a 15 seed that's rolling, but you've got almost what a full week to prepare for that game against Oral Roberts, who you've played before, who you've beaten before. So you know, you know who they are. You know kind of how they play. Man, I, it, the bracket just opened up beautifully for uh, for Arkansas here, and I'm really looking forward. I, I really hope that we get a Baylor versus Arkansas um, Elite Eight game in the, in this region. That's going to be my pick, and I'm, I'm gonna. I'm going to say Arkansas actually picks off Baylor. I've, I've been, you know, down, down on Baylor really all year, all year long. And um, I, I, I do like Arkansas in the way that they played after they got through Texas Tech. So if I, if I was picking the, the bracket, I would actually say Arkansas over Baylor. I can see that too, because Baylor is a team that like lives and dies by the three. So much, there's so much bigger yeah. to that the shots are not falling as Arkansas. That's a problem. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, they were, they were definitely falling against uh, uh, Wisconsin for them. And I, I think that they'll, they'll get by Villanova regardless, but I think that'll be a really fun game if we get at Baylor and Arkansas. Yeah. I think let's go, let's go down South, go to the Midwest region now, which is the, which is the region of chaos right now because it's Houston and, th- and three lower seeds in there. You got Loyola, Chicago, Oregon state. And we have on the other side of it, Houston, Syracuse. I think in my opinion, I'm going to take the Ramblers out of this region I think that this is a very deep team. Cameron Crutwig is a big presence in the middle, good defense, and I just can't trust Kelvin Sampson and his team at a big spot. I think they'll get by Syracuse. I think they're going to have trouble with the Rambler. I'm going to take Loyola Chicago over Houston to get to the Final Four. Well, yeah, what's, what's I think, the most fun about, about the Midwest region, and we kind of talked about how, how much it opened up um, before, I think you can make a legitimate case for, for every team in this region to make the final four. And, and, you know, I get, I get it's a sweet 16. You can really do that for every team now at this point, but you know, if you're looking at the West Gonzaga is most likely going to win the West in the South Baylor is the clear favorite here. Like, I don't know if there's, maybe you disagree. I don't know if there's like a clear favorite in the Midwest. I think, you know, Houston, you can make a case for, as you said, 
Loyola Chicago certainly is, has a good shot. And we've seen Syracuse do this before as, as a double-digit seed, so it wouldn't shock me if they did it as well. And Oregon State is playing, you know, as good basketball as anyone. So I, I really think this is like the, the one region that is just totally wide, wide open, you know, where you can really – am I, am, I, am I off saying no, that? Though? No, I think you're right. Yeah, that you could really make a case for, for any, any of these four teams to make it. Um, if I had to pick one, I mean, it, it's a total crapshoot. I would probably say Loyola against – I, I would still, I would still take Houston. I, I think I'm going to take Loyola against Houston. Then I'm going to take Houston to win this, uh, to win this region. I, I, I uh, but I think that'll be a very good game. And like I said, that game is a, is a total, total toss up. Uh, whatever game we see in the sweet in the elite eight for that region will be a total toss up. All right. Last region to hit obviously is the East region. We got one, two and one, two and four in there. And then we have UCLA who, who managed to get through thanks to Texas, like, like laying an A against Abilene Christian here. So, I think for me, the whole key to this reason is, I, if, is Isaiah Livers back from Michigan because if he's not, I don't think they're getting through. Yeah, yeah, that's really the, the, the key for that game. I think Florida State's going to give them a game regardless. But, you know, with, with Livers on the court, Michigan, I think, is, is up there with Gonzaga and Baylor as two of the best, as one of the best. I mean, they're a one seed, but, you know, really one of the best teams in the country and, you know, one of the favorites to win this tournament. But uh, I think Florida State's going to give them a game regardless. Uh, in the bottom half of that region, it's kind of like a, a football matchup, right? You know, yeah. UCLA and Alabama, uh, you would expect to see that in, in the uh, college football playoff, maybe if, if UCLA was a little bit better. But uh, that's a, that's going to be a fun game as well. I think UCLA and Alabama is going to be a, a real fun game. Can UCLA keep that momentum up? You know, they've already won three games in this tournament, trying to become, what, the second team ever to make the uh, to go from the first four to the final four. They've, they've got to win two games to do that, obviously. Um, I think Alabama will get by them. And I, I, I could see, I, I think with the uncertainty with Michigan, I could see Florida State picking them off and getting a Florida State, Alabama Elite Eight. And from there, I would say, I think, I think Alabama could probably win that game. So I, if I'm picking, I, I would say Alabama. But this is another one where I think really all of the teams, or at least three of the teams, you can make a legitimate case for. It's, it's the bottom half of the bracket is a lot more open than the top, I would say. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about this read, besides livers, is if we anybody can take the Rick Patino game plan against Alabama and execute it, because Alabama was so frustrated because Iona in that first round game was basically take was going down the court, making them play half court, not letting Arkansas Alabama get out, shoot these yeah. threes in transition, get the easy layups, and they're like an NBA team where they want to go either to the rack or shoot from outside. And Iona was making them play full half court offense. It was frustrating them and playing tremendous defense. Nick Cronin knows how to do that. He's done that in his day in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's the personnel to do it. I think if Florida yeah. State gets there, that's a very interesting situation because Leonard Hamilton has the length, he has the athleticism there to keep up with that Arkansas team, Alabama team, because Iona had that issue where they had him beat for about 30 minutes. They yeah. just ran out of bodies, and Alabama's bench was the difference in that game. I think I'm going to take Florida State getting the Final Four in that region. Yeah, I mean, I really think you could make a case for, for, for all of those teams as well. And it's like you mentioned, it, it's a couple of tough matchups for, uh, for Alabama, a couple of teams that like to kind of play a little bit a little bit slower and man that, that Iona game was fun they they had him there for for a little while and uh I think talent just kind of kind of took over in the end in the last 10 minutes or so yeah with that game was really just more the death of Alabama and Iona would played very well but just ran out of gas that's something I can't yeah. blame them for because they've gone so long without practicing with all the COVID pauses and like their guys had no legs left at the end of that game and I mean you saw that one sequence where 
Alabama hits the three, then Herb Jones with gets the steal and does yeah. has the transition dunk to lead to the timeout. They go from a one point Alabama lead to about a seven point Alabama lead. At that point, the game was very much over. Yeah, and if if you are an Iona fan, you really you know you can't be upset. You you no. played them really really tough for for a full game. You know a team that's way way has way more depth, like we said, and way more talent than you. So you really can't be upset if you're Iona. No, you cannot. And I think that's a good it's a fun weekend. I'm a little concerned about the Sweet 16 round. I think there could be some very bad games in here because the matchups, yeah. a lot of them are not very good. Yeah. I think <laughs> if we get the chalk, I think it's a fan kind of want to root for the chalk to get through here because I think you have kind of a dynamic elite eight if the chalk gets through there. Otherwise, like, you could be in some trouble. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, you root for, I've always said this, you know, it, it's fun seeing a team like Oral Roberts, you know, win their first round game and it's fun seeing Abilene Christian win their first round game. But then you look up and you've got Oral Roberts in Florida in, in the second round, and you've got Abilene Christian losing by 40 against UCLA in the second round. Um, you know, so it, sometimes it, it's more fun just to get the chalk and get the fun matchups. But like you said, I mean, there are still a lot of fun potential um, elite eight games. If, if the, uh, if the teams that we expect to win do win. So it's going to be fun regardless. It's, it's the NCAA tournament, you know, you're guaranteed madness. So uh it, it, these games are going to be fun regardless if they're fun matchups or not. Yep, there we have it. And Troy Morial, thank you again for taking the time to do this. It'll be fun checking you next week after the Elite Eight round. We can preview the Final Four, get ready for the National Championship game. That will be exciting. Absolutely. And I can't wait to do that. It's always fun to, to uh, chat college basketball with you, Mike. Yeah, before I let you, I can you follow social media, keep on some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. Yeah. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Troy Moriello. It's uh, M A U R I E L L O, is that last name. Uh, I do the, if you're a St. John's fan, do the seeing red podcast. So you can check that out. Uh, we just did our, uh, our season recap on, um, on Monday. So definitely check that out if you get a chance and um, yeah, thanks again for having me on Mike. Yeah. A lot of, definitely a lot of fun. And I got to ask you are, you, are you a big fancy baseball guy? Eh, not, not, not too much. I'm in a, uh, in a dynasty league with a, with a couple people, but I'm not a big fantasy baseball guy now. Yeah, I'm a fake fantasy baseball guy. I have a fantasy baseball draft coming up tonight. Before I do that, though, any of the ba- fantasy baseball guys, you stick around the podcast. I'm going to have a chat with the great Alan Oss. We're going to give you a fantasy baseball preview in the seventh inning stretch right after this. Right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Entering the seventh inning stretch here. We're going to do some fantasy baseball as we get your attention off of March Madness for a minute. Joining me today, one of my favorite fantasy baseball guys, addition to all of his pop culture coverage here in the podcast, Alan Austin's here. Alan, how are you? Mike, good to see you this time around doing the podcast. I am well. Yeah, usually we do it on the phones. Nice to get you on Zoom this time. Yeah, and I'll probably sound a lot clearer. Whenever I listen back to myself on your show, I always sound like I'm like in the Kill Bill grave trying to like bust myself out of it like I'm <laughs> 10 feet underground so it's nice to be able to probably be heard appropriately yeah absolutely and last year we th- did fantasy base but we we're gonna do it at the start of the season then COVID happened and we did it in July and how did you do in fantasy baseball last year not well um <laughs> it, admittedly part of that was my heart just wasn't in it last yep. year my team was all over the place in terms of are they healthy? Are they not just trying to manage the the season was like, it was a crap shoot. I couldn't get into it. And I was out early. Yeah. I think we were like a month and a half into the season and, and I, I already knew I had no shot. So I was pretty, 
I was pretty disinterested to say the least, but I'm all the more interested heading into 2021. Yeah, for me, like I had a good team on paper and then it was one of those things where nobody hit for the first like three weeks. So I put myself in a big hole. I tried to charge back, just ran out of time and I'm I'm okay. I'm happy though. I got the first pick of my keeper draft because we want I won the keeper draft lottery here. So usually we uh, awarded to the consolation bracket winner, the first overall pick, since there was none this year because I expanded the playoffs to eight teams in my league to give more opportunity. I won the one in four lottery to get number one, which is a big advantage in the keeper league. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I'll take it. I want to try and win, though. I haven't won this league since 17, so I'd like to get back on the on top of the mountain. You know, there are people in leagues for 20 years who've never won, so for you to say that you haven't won since 17, that's a winner's mentality right there. Yeah, I mean, like, I run this league. I've been in the top three a bunch of times. I have one, one ring. I want to get another one. Well, good luck, sir. Yeah, same to you. And I had to say, getting ready for this season, I thought it was going to be easier because, like, okay, you know, 162 again. Everything is all normal. Then... You know, I like to do it. I like to get my fancy baseball magazine. I like to read the magazine, get some stuff. And I'm looking at the numbers here. I'm like, this is so hard because right now your your numbers are so skewed because 19 was juice baseball, which means you have guys in 35 home runs who are normally you're probably in 17. And you had right. the pitcher pitching normal innings. And then last year, obviously 60 games. So it's so hard right. to rely on that analysis of like what we saw the last two years. It's almost like we have to kind of start all over again, yeah. which is you know, fitting with fantasy, but there are certain aspects of this season you cannot predict. One is how are pitchers going to do with the inning workload after only playing 60 games last year and almost going two years without a real regular schedule. So it's going to be tough. It, it's hard to rely on that. Obviously COVID was still play a part. I think, I think we both know that at a certain point, all these players will be vaccinated and and those kind of numbers will certainly go down. So I'm less worried about COVID this season, more worried about wear and tear and sudden impact, so to speak, on the players. Yeah, it makes some sense because the COVID thing, really, it's going to be an issue, I think, the first half of the year based on the timing of when the vaccine rollout is going to be. So I feel like April and May are going to be our rough months here in terms of like, if we're going to have gains postponed, if we're going to have guys on the COVID list for contact tracing reasons because they catch the virus, but... I think for me, in, t- in terms of how I run my league, we basically are going back to our normal 2019 rules where we had, the only thing we're doing, we're giving a couple extra IL spots for the COVID guys. But other than that, we're just acting like it's going to be a normal year. That's how MLB is treating it. Yeah, our league's doing the same thing. A few more IL spots, a bigger window. So what we did last year, we implemented a COVID list. So if your player got COVID or was in protocol and would miss a chunk of time, you had the right to drop them and pick up a a free agent without penalty so that when they were, you know, when they came off, you could just re-pick them up. No one else had rights to them. So it was a thing that we threw in for 2020. We're not doing that this year. This year is kind of going pretty straightforward and it's a roll of the dice. So it's a roll of the dice. I do think, it's going to be nice to have some normality back. I want to touch on one thing you brought on with the pitchers. I think it's fascinating because most years you have your horses are going like 200, 215 innings. Even your back-end guys are going to go like 170. Nobody lets you pitch more than 80. That's inclusive of the 80, 85, inclusive of the playoffs. So that's a huge innings jump for a lot of these guys to go from it, that. It is, especially the younger pitchers who are, you know, the last – 10 years or so in the big leagues, you and I have witnessed it, especially coming from the age where we grew up watching baseball, where the pampering 
you know, whether you believe in it or not, of pitchers' workload, the pitch counts and all that has already been significantly more monitored. And I can only think that that's going to increase this year. So we may be looking at some pitchers, especially in that prospect near big league level ready, that aren't pitching more than 120 innings this yeah. year. So that you have to take that into consideration when drafting these guys. Yeah, I think it's something that you have to sort of look at what teams like the Mets and the Dodgers are doing, where they're sort of having eight quality options for starting pitching. So, like, I feel like the more capable stars you have this year, the better off you're going to be. You can't just take, like, your ace and then just say, okay, I'll be fine after that. You need to have, like, enough options because some of your guys are going to land on the I.L. Yeah, when you think about it, when it comes to pitchers and workloads and consistency, we're probably not going to get back to it until two seasons from now. Yeah, Like around 2023, when everyone's kind of back in the rhythm and pitchers have worked their pitch counts back to a normal big league level, it's it's going to be a while. This is not that year. So, you know, we'll get into draft strategy a little bit, but we'll get back to this when it comes to pitching when we touch on that. And we hope it's 2023 because don't forget we have that labor time bomb hanging over us here. So that's one that could throw us back even further. Always, always. It's just we need a new commissioner. I've said that on the record on this show before. <laughs> we need someone who loves baseball but is also a good businessman. And it's just not happening right now with, with Mr. Manfred. Yeah, it certainly isn't. And I think also the hitter thing we have they're also fascinating here because the juice baseball in theory is gone. In theory, we're going to have the normal right. baseball coming back. So you have to look back at those 19 numbers and say, hmm, maybe the guy who hit like – 19 home runs hit four in 2020, maybe more of the like a 10 guy over a whole of a season, close to a 20 guy. The first guy that jumps to mind is Glaber Torres, yeah. especially in our market. People are going to be drooling to sign sign him to, to select him, and you really got to watch out. I'm not saying he'll be a bust, but I'm also not saying I'm also saying he's not going to be 2019 Glaber Torres. So there's a lot of there's a lot of players like that around the league. To be fair to Glaber Torres, though, he still had the same division as the Baltimore Orioles. We homered most, I think, like 17 home runs against that year. So, I mean, he's going to kill him again. If every game was in Camden Yards, he'd be the MVP and have a better than Bonds season, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So, let's talk about the draft for a minute here. So, like, what's your plan of attack for the draft this year? Like, how are you approaching things? Has it changed at all from COVID? There's an old expression, jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. So I'd rather balance my roster out with guys who are average to above average in as many categories as possible, rather than a guy who will be the best in one. So that's specifically a guy I'm going to personally avoid is an Eloy Jimenez, who is going to mash, but he's not going to be every category. He's not going to get you steals. He's probably not going to be in the upper echelon of runs. I'm going to try to stay away from players like that and look to get a little bit more diversity in terms of statistics and consistency. So that's my plan, both on the pitching and hitting side. Kind of get those middle tier guys who's who will add up the stats as opposed to one or two studs in one or two categories. Yeah, I think for me, I think the interesting thing to consider there is obviously I like to usually just stack the bats because they're so they're so much more dependable in the early rounds. And then like do that, get one ace and then sort of like backfill your pitching as you go and sort of go at least I like to have like three or four hitters in there, one pitcher. And that starts sort of alternating hitter, pitcher, hitter, pitcher the rest of the way. Of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. I usually I, I first of all, if you're doing a regular online draft, I wouldn't draft a stud pitcher until at least round three, depending on who's available. If you're auctioning, I say 
you know, budget appropriately for that ace, but don't overspend for the middle of the road pitchers when you can probably lock up the hitters that you need to first. Yeah, and I think so too. And in terms of the pitchers also, the starting the aces here, I've seen a lot of debate online between who the top guy is, like whether it's Garrett Cole or it's Jacob DeGrom. I've seen some Shane Bieber stands come out of the woodwork out the last year. So who is your first pitcher? I'm always going Jake. Yeah. I'm always going Jake DeGrom, and it's not a New York bias. He, I think he is the best pitcher in baseball for the last three years. I don't think anything's going to change. And we talked about, you know, you want to avoid guys who aren't going to pitch many innings. He will pitch the required innings. He's one of a handful of guys you can rely on. And when you're the best, that's got to be the number one pick. I, I know, you know, New York Yankee fans will argue Garrett Cole, but I'm still going DeGrom as my first pitcher off the board. Yeah, I agree with that. I, not, 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 not my Met fan bias speaking as I'm wearing the Met shirt on the Zoom here. I will say yeah. also that Jake will give you everything. There's, as of right now, there's no DH in the National League as of recording right. time. So that's something he's going to get advantage of. He's facing pitchers still, which means he's going to get some easy outs in those games. And his problem over the years has been he can't get wins because the Mets either can't score for him or the bullpen blows games. So they've improved in both those areas. So I figure he's in line for a big wins correction this year. Yes. And, you know, not every league runs the win stats, but for those who do quality starts instead of wins, even more the reason to love Jake. So he is the guy, in my opinion, and all the love to Garrett Cole, who I think is probably number two right now. Yeah. Jacob DeGrom is one of my three keepers in that in my league this year. So I'm very happy. I have a starting point for my offense. I do. I'm making staff. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful choice. It is a great choice. And in terms of, let's say you're lucky and you have the number one overall pick in a non-keeper league. Because keeper league, guys, he throws things off because guys are getting capped off the board. So right. if you're sitting there number one in your standard league, where are you going? Now, I, I honestly believe there are five players to choose from. Yeah. The, the big five. I'm going to go with Fernando Tatis Jr. If I have the first pick. The guy was unbelievable last year, and it wasn't one of those false sample sizes. The guy's got the talent. He's got the big contract. The team's going to be good. It's going to be electric down there in San Diego. And if I had to, you know, it, the only other player that I really considered over him was Juan Soto. So I'm going to go Tatis. Yeah, those are good. Those are two good choices there. I'm going to throw one out there. I think if I was number one, I'd take Ronald Acuna Jr. because he has that five category potential. And mm-hmm. I feel like he's got such a good lineup behind him in Atlanta. You know, he's hitting lead off a lot of the time. He's still going to put up those stats for you. I like Ronald Acuna, number one. That's a great choice. I have like this thing against Ronald Acuna right now only because of the lack of hustle at times. Yeah. So I, I, I just like, obviously, I'm, I'm in alone on that island where I, like just can't shake that thought. He's uber talented. He's you will not regret picking him if you're able to get him in this draft, even if it's at number one. I honestly agree with you, so I have no problem with that. Yeah, let's get to some of the stuff that people really care about here. Let's talk about some sleepers. Let's go to the offense first. Who are your sleeper hitters? Give me my a first, yep, my first sleeper hitter is Rumpelstiltskin, famous for sleeping. Uh, or is it Rumpelstiltskin <laughs> who sleeps? Who's the Who's the fairy tale that sleeps? Uh, I I try to think which one it was. I I think it's Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. No, he's the headless horseman. Yeah. He's a uh, yeah. Rumple. Bad jokes aside. Yeah. My first sleeper hitter is somebody who is considered an upper echelon prospect, but had a pretty miserable 2020 debut. But I love the peripherals, and I'm going with the Cardinals outfielder Dylan Carlson. Yeah. Why Dylan? 
I just love what he's, you know, I love his skill set. I think he kind of got overmatched a little bit, but he also showed signs of life in that bat. And I think a full season under his belt, protected in the lineup by Goldschmidt and Arenado. He's not going to have to overperform. I really like him this year, and I think he's going to take off. Yeah, I think also I'll stick with the Mets for my sleeper hitter here. And I think this is also a guy who kind of gets lost in the shuffle in that lineup because you see all the big names. You see Lindor, you see Alonzo, you see Dom Smith. Brandon Nimmo as a fantasy player is an underrated asset because he's good in the OPS categories. You guys had those. He has the ability to do some steals. He'll get you some pop. He can hit like 17 home runs. If he's healthy, that's the big issue with him because right now, like he's had injuries, had a neck issue in 19. Last year he was healthy. He was a very effective offensive player. I think Brandon Nimmo is a good fantasy sleeper looking for a third outfielder. That's an interesting choice. I feel like there is a little bit of Mets bias there. Just the, just the, you know, just a tad bit. Yeah, I just think also the opportunity for Brandon. He's hitting lead off in a much better lineup than he was in last year. Will he be platooning with Kevin Pillar or Albert Almora? I mean, I, he would be on the strong side of the platoon, obviously. But like as of right now, they're trying to get him more at bats in spring training as left-handed pitching because they really clearly think he can be a close-to-everyday guy. Interesting. Yeah. We, we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. you have any other sleeper hitters that are interesting to you? I do. And this is a guy who, if it's not 2021 that he fully takes off, it's somebody that you might be able to get cheap and and keep. And I think he might actually have a really good 2021. And it's Nick Madrigal of the Chicago White Sox. You know, it breaks my heart as a Tigers fan to, to even say this, but I love this player. I love Nick Madrigal. He's going to have a good average. He's going to be that balance type I referenced earlier. So I'm going with the Chicago White Sox second baseman. Yeah, I had Nick Madrigal on my team last year. He was a nice find when he was there. And now he got hurt, he missed some time, but... The high average guy help you out in that batting average department, which is a big deal because a lot of these sluggers are hitting like 240, 250. He's the guy who's hitting over 300. That's health. Yeah, I don't think he's going to have a ton of homers, but again, he'll contribute in every category. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's a good option there. Let's go to the pitchers here. Any, any, let's start with the starting pitcher. Any starting pitchers that you really like? Yeah, one is, you know, to a real baseball nut. He's a household name already. But to those play, those people listening that may not follow every team, especially the West Coast teams, Jesus Luzardo of the Oakland A's is going to really come into his own in 2021. And I think if you can get him, you get him. Yeah, interesting. And I know, I know Luzardo, he had a small sample size, all the talent in the world. And Oakland has a reputation just making these pitchers very, be very, very good. So I love yeah, that he- pick. Yeah, he had two bad starts, which really ballooned his numbers. But I think he's going to be a consistent arm. He may be, though, someone to watch on the limited innings. But I could also see him, if they're in a playoff race and they're trying to conserve him, slide to the bullpen. And if you don't do, you know, if you're not, if you're in a good position with wins and quality starts, I think he's a great option to help out in the strikeouts per inning, the whip, the ER. I just love him across the board. Yeah, I have one in your division, who I'm sure you saw a bit last year. Interesting. Brady Singer on the Royals. I liked him a lot. I saw him last year. He got basically, they was not expecting him to be a factor for the pandemic. They bring him up. He starts the second game of the season for the for the Royals. Held his own against some very tough hitters in those divisions. And I think year older, better lineup behind him. got a better chance of some wins. I think you could see, again, sort of St. Dilthe where the innings are a bit iffy there. But I like what he has there. And he showed some guts last year. I think Brady Singer could be a sneaky pick there in the, in the middle of late rounds. Yeah, believe it or not, when when their draft came up, I know everyone was saying the Tigers will take Mize at one. 
I kind of wanted Singer over Mize. I know Mize at the time was just like, no one was going to touch him. But I love Brady Singer. So I'm very nervous to be facing him in the division for the next couple of years. Yeah, I think so. And let's talk about the, you know, talk closers for a second here because I feel like closer strategy is also very interesting because I feel like this is one where, I don't know if you feel me, it's like, I hate drafting closers high because 90% of the time, they're either going to be bad, lose their jobs, at least a third of the league turns over every year in terms of closer jobs. I don't want to spend premium picks on closers. Yeah, to me, closers are the most fantasy football-esque type player in fantasy baseball where like your third running back or your third wide receiver could be great one week and then they never get used again and you're like what's going on they had one bad game and they're out it's just such a crap shoot i just closers i think you you study the depth charts right yeah you just gotta get who you can get and if the closers start coming off the board you do not want to be last to grab a closer so i say go with the flow on closers and you know if if all of a sudden four division leading projected teams closers are off the board i'd shoot for one of those you know second tier team closers as soon as possible at least get one on your squad yeah because saves or saves i mean somebody's got to save games to the pirates this year so right yeah right and and they will not be first but i do think you should try and aim for a a team who's going to win at least 75 games closer before they're all gone yeah in other words you don't want to get stuck with the rockies closer no one to get stuck with the Rockies closer. All due respect to whoever that will be this year. Yeah, I feel like for me, I also put value this year, especially on like the relievers that have high strikeout totals. I feel like those guys are going to be extremely valuable this year. Absolutely, absolutely. I have a second sleeper pitcher that is not necessarily your biggest K per nine guy, but he will fill out the rest of the statistics, and that's Zach Gallen of the Diamondbacks. Another guy who to baseball fanatics is a household name, but to those of you who don't know, this guy is solid he's the de- de- he's reliable dependable he is in a stud out in arizona yeah i was so happy the marlins traded out of the division because that was a trade not understand there right i know jazz chisel is a highly rated prospect but like pitching is so hard to find i know they have some other guys in that organization they have pablo lopez who was good Sixto Santos had a big rookie year Al- alcantara has been good but like zach gallon might be as good as any of them yeah i think zach gallon is arguably one of the top three pitchers in the NL West right now. So that's high praise. I know, but I love him. I think he's a great, great pitcher. And if you can steal him in the third or fourth round, people aren't paying attention. That would be just unbelievable. I also, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring on a Yankee guy for a sleeper pitcher. I think Jamison Tyone landing in the Bronx, the perfect spot for him. I got to see him stay healthy. You know, I I hope he does because I really enjoy his work. I love watching him pitch. I'm rooting for him to do well this year. I just got to see it first. Because of their high-risk pitchers, I like him a lot more than like Corey Kluber for them. For sure. And I would not touch Tyon before the eighth or so round. Yeah, like I've said, you can get him late, I feel like. Probably get him like in double digits. Yeah, eighth might still be too early. I think there is a lot of upside, but it's got to be proven. I, I love the guy, though. Yeah, let's go to the other. Let's go to the bus. Let's go to people you should avoid because I feel like a lot of this is always brand name off a of de- like slightly down year. You're hoping the rebound that doesn't have. I feel like that's a good recipe for your busts. Yeah, and one of these busts, I'm hoping to reverse jinx. Yeah. I have him on my team. This is year three, I think, where I'm like, all right, this is it. Let's do it. It's time. Vlad Guerrero Jr. 
I'm okay. so nervous that he's going to continue to be a bust. I okay. don't love his peripherals. He swings wildly like his father without the, shockingly enough, without the discipline of his father right now. He just seems a little overmatched at the big league level. So I'm hoping to reverse jinx this because he's going to be on my squad this year, but I'm nervous that Vlad Guerrero Jr. is going to be a bust. Yeah, he's also on my squad. He's on my three keepers of the year. So I'm hoping that he stick that he just picks it up. And I'm sure he was a guy you thought I'm definitely going to keep him, but with, not without reservation because that's how he was for me. Like I was like, oh, I can't get rid of him, but I'm really hoping because to me on my fantasy team, this is his make or break year. Yeah, I think for, that's the case for me too. Because like I have also because like our league, the way it works, we have like three big league guys and one minor league guy, and the minor league guy I have is Jared Kelnick, who is going to be a stud. So you figure yeah. some at the service time controversy in Seattle, he'll be might be up on the roster on opening day. So at the end, you're off to decide possibly Kelnick or Flag Junior. So that's going to be a choice I probably have to make. Right now, I'd go Kelnick. Yeah, that's that's where I'm leaning to in terms of a bust hitter candidate. I'm gonna. Have, Stick, I got two in the city of Chicago for you. Okay. Number one, Jose Abreu is not doing what he did again last year with the MVP. He won the MVP in the American League. I feel like you are if you're paying for MVP Abreu, you're going to be very disappointed because it's good. he does the same thing every single year. He gives you about 25 home runs, about 90 RBIs, hours in the 270s. If you are hoping that last year's projecting is going to be, okay, this is what we got going on here, that's a big problem for you. I do not touch Jose Abreu. I, I, I can see what you're saying. It's almost like saying, you know, the best movie ever's sequel will not be as good as the original. It's tough to compare. The guy was really good last year, but over 162 games, I agree with you. It's not going to be the same output. That lineup is stacked. I I just, you know, I think he's going to lose some RBIs and, and homers and stuff to other people in that lineup. I would say you, to avoid him in the first couple rounds, for sure. I I, I can see your point, for sure. Because I feel like somebody's going to bite the bullet, take him like, about three rounds earlier than he should be taken. I could see that happening in almost 90% of leagues across the country, especially those Chicago leagues. Yeah. Yeah, the other one I'll stay with Chicago, Chris Bryant, bust candidate for me again, because this is one of those where you're going to say, oh, walk year, he was hurt last year, but he has not been the same guy since about 2017. He's had wrist injuries, he's had back injuries, he's had injuries all over the board. They talked about them trying to trade him, so I might be distracted on the field. Like, I would be very wary of Chris Bryant. I feel like name back, name value there is they get him picked a couple rounds higher than his production warrants. I had him on my short list of bus candidates, and the only reason I didn't throw him on was because in a lot of projections I've seen, they don't have him doing anything extraordinary this year. He's got kind of a pedestrian projection, yeah. so I kept him off the list because I think that you know he's figured out at this point. I think he's still a household name, but he is certainly not in that top tier of third baseman anymore. No, I th- my prediction with him, I feel like he's going to be sh- shipped out at the trade deadline by the Cubs. Like, I don't think they're going to be in contention the whole year. No, the Cubs are not. I don't think the Cubs are going to have a great year, for sure. No, I, I think for sure. Like That's one I could also see. Like I know the Mets have been linked to. I could see them sort of circling back in July if their third base situation is not doing very great. Yeah. Yeah, and that, you know what? That'd be a nice pickup for the Mets if we if he's having a a good to great season. Good season, sure. You put him in the six hole as the Mets, and yeah, we're fantasy we're fantasy projecting in other ways here. Yeah. Uh, my second bust is a guy who had a monster twenty nineteen, fell off the face of the earth last year, and 
We don't know how he's going to rebound from a shock injury, although they're saying he's fine. I'm going Cody Bellinger. There's just no way he's ever going to put up those 2019 numbers. I don't love this swing a lot of time, and I just think can figure out it's not going to be great for Mr. Bellinger. I think he can be relieved a little bit by the Dodgers being so great overall. If he was on a small market team and the whole lineup was re- relying on him, I don't think it'd be pretty. So he'll have a nice year, but don't I don't think he's going to be that mega star this year that he was in 2019. Yeah, I think that's a very good one. Do you mind if I start bus pitchers? I have one I'm very confident is going to be drafted way too high. Go for it. Trevor Bauer. Yes. Oh, gosh. And you know what? I'm not a Met fan. I love the Mets. But after that whole saga... Is it is it mean to say that I hope he busts? <laughs> like, yeah. is it like is it too mean to say that? I just think he's just so uh, everything he does is just like misses. It just yeah. misses the mark. Not, not even off the field stuff. When you can, that's also gonna be a problem because now he's in Los Angeles. We're in a bigger microscope now, where he was in Cincinnati or Cleveland, where no one was really caring what he was doing on social media. But he also, yeah. if you look at his career track record. He, last year, he got paid off 11 brilliant starts against very bad lineups. He's had one very good season before that in 2018. The rest of the time, he's guys at pitchers an ERA over four. And right now, you talk about him as the starting pitcher four on most draft boards, which is absurdly high when you have a lot of quality pitchers on the board. I feel like if you're paying second-round price on Trevor Bauer, you'd be very disappointed. It's a classic case of recent bias. Like yeah. that's all there is to it. I've never really loved Trevor Bauer on or off the field. You know, I, I think with the Dodgers, he will be better off than if he were on another team, but I can see the bust. If you're, if you're looking for him to anchor your staff and be your big numbers guy on your rotation, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah. Cause I feel like with Trevor Bauer, I feel like his ERA is going to be about like probably three, five around there. He'll win about 17 games. He's, not, he's being supported by a great lineup, but He'll have some stuff off the field. He's going to be distracted. He's got a couple of stink bombs in there. And then you're going to be sitting there like, why did I pay second-round price for Trevor Bauer? I could have had like a stud slugger. Yeah, I mean, if Clayton Kershaw gets ripped apart by their media at times, who's to say what's going to happen to Bauer? Yeah, and Bauer is from there. And you figure he would have an idea what's going on. He's already getting into fights about like posts he's making. It's not good. No, he is, you know, I'm not a fan. And I have no, no problem saying that. All right, so who is your bus pitcher? I'm going with somebody who is a former Tiger, but I think this is finally starting, you know, age and injuries are finally starting to creep up, and people are still going to think, you know, he's that guy. And I think in some ways he will be, but I don't know if he's going to be on the field all season. Mad Max Scherzer. Yeah, he was, you saw with the Nationals last year, he was sort of falling apart a little bit. He was not the same guy. Age is catching up to him. Yeah, and back and neck problems, you never like to hear that. And I like Max, so it's going to be tough to see, but I think I think he might finally be heading towards that breakdown. Yeah, I think for sure. I think he's definitely a breakdown candidate, and I do like, I worry about like some of those older guys, especially like with the injuries, with the jumping innings. Like Some of those guys are going to get hurt on you. Yeah, I, I think the Nationals are in for a rough season overall. Just, you know, forecasting as much as I can. I don't love that team. And I think they're relying on, you know, Juan Soto to just be way over his head, you know, better than he can be right now. It's just, it's not going to be great. You know, if I'm a Met fan, 
I'm worried about the Braves, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Mets and Braves for that division right now. That's basically where we are. I don't think – I'm not worried about them. I'm not worried about the Phillies. I'm, and the Marlins, I think, were a short season, seven-inning doubleheader boosted playoff team. I don't think they're doing it over 162. No, and you know what? It makes me feel like it's the late 90s again. Mets and Braves, yeah. you know, going at each other. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms – I'm trying to think of in terms of, like, I know I want to get to a reliever, like, who I feel like could be a bust candidate. I'm trying to, like, think of my options here because – the problem is, like, I'm don't I'm not one who tends to value relievers super highly, but I'm like, I think for me, the guy who jumps out is Devin Williams on the on the Brewers because people are gonna buy that very ridiculously low ERA for a very short season. They're gonna be disappointed if he's like pitched to a two ERA, so they have like a point five. Yeah, and he's not gonna get the saves, so it's kind of a tough spot. You know, he's he's a very talented pitcher, but for fantasy wise, I tend to stay away unless you, you know, you're later in the season, you can get him. You need a little bump in in uh, ratios. ERA, yeah, that'd be where I'd go for him. Yeah, all right, and that's that's what we got for fantasy baseball, Alan. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good luck. Good luck. Before I let you go, I'll be following social media. Keep on some of the stuff you're up to. Sure, on Instagram at Alan Austin Sports and on Twitter at Alan underscore Austin underscore. And you can follow our podcast. My co-host Ben Rosen and myself do the American Scene podcast, which is we watch movies with American in the title and kind of go over their, you know, cultural value significance and what the messages they're trying to say about our beloved country. So American Scene Pod you know, on Instagram, find us on Twitter and, um, you know, we, we have a blast doing it. So thank you for allowing me the time today to come on, Mike. No problem. I also want to give, give a shout out to Alan's Twitter. He followed his random baseball player shout outs oh. for all you baseball fans. He's got, those are fun. Yes. Yes. They, they are. You know, I, I think I'm going to start expanding sports to kind of bring in more people. So we might go random basketball player one day, random football player one day, random tennis player and baseball and just kind of, you know, go at, so yeah, it's been it's been fun. Yeah, I I, I do have not one more for what for your for your random baseball player shoutouts. I'll also be your guy for tennis. You need random tennis players. All right, so who who do you got next for baseball since we're on the topic? Placido Polanco. Hey, as a Tiger fan, love <laughs> love Mr. Polanco. That that will be the next one. Yeah, because I I remember him from his time with the Phillies. Yes, yes, he uh, he's a player I would love to have on my team right now. Yeah, you would be great, Alan. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. All right, we are back here on the podcast talking about the premiere of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the second MCU TV series, not counting all the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all those things happened back in the day. Joining me today, somebody new on the Marvel scene on the podcast, but good friend of mine. He's going to be on soon talking some golf as well. Dan Martinez is here. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back for this one. Um, obviously, we're, we're getting into the heart of the golf season, but right now, now it's uh it's it's chilly and cold i know it's nice in the northeast but uh not a great time uh down south for golf so looking forward to talking a little marvel while i'm stuck indoors in the cold and rain by define cold in florida um it was in the low 60s today yeah it was in the low 60s up here too it was a nice weather day (laughs) i figured as much (laughs) 
Yeah. It's, yeah. We we're, uh, we're, we're used to mid eighties and sunshine at this time of the year already. So winter is very short in the South. So. Yeah. Yeah. The difference here is that you went from 80 to 60 and we went from about 30 to 60. So it's a jump up for us. a jump down for you. Yeah. You guys are looking up. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for people, yeah. for people who are listening to this, not in the real time, obviously recording on Sunday night, I was outside today. I was rec- calling a soccer game for Iona college. So I got to be outside top of the press box, a very nice day, nice, cool breeze, 60 degrees. And they won the game. So all good. Wow. Well, it looked beautiful up there from everything I could see. I saw your Instagram photo. Um, it, it was definitely 20 mile an hour winds and uh, absolutely cold here. So um, I, at least for my Florida self, I, I couldn't handle it, but I'm glad you guys are getting back out. New York and the Northeast really needs it. So, yeah, we do. And let's talk about the weather here. Let's talk about some Marvel here and, I did a ton of uh, WandaVision on the podcast. I know you watched the whole thing through. What was your big impression on that whole series? Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I, I know everybody was, the big criticism was that it was a little slow and that, you know, the first few episodes, people weren't 100% into it. I knew that there had to be some sort of meaning behind uh, the whole changes of the decades. And I have loved the tie-in that, you know, you know, Wanda is severely traumatized by what happened and, you know, just kind of understanding how, you know, therapy and, and things like that work, you know, everything is usually based off your childhood and things that happened to you growing up in your environment. So I love the fact that, you know, they, they targeted certain portions of her life uh, and kind of explained it through the show. No spoiler alerts for those that um, we're listening in, but um, there's a, a connection to what her extreme loss, um, and it seems to be a recurring theme through all of Marvel, is how do these people pick up the pieces? How do these heroes pick up the pieces? Uh, so I love everything that they do. And to be honest, just wa- reading the comics growing up, Scarlet Witch and Vision was kind of one of my favorite um, after Deadpool and the Hulk. So um, I just really enjoyed seeing them give her... Uh, as a standalone character, her due because she's obviously an incredibly powerful superhero, and um, I was all about it. In uh, I couldn't wait till Friday morning when I could wake up, grab a cup of coffee, and watch the episode right when it launched. Yeah, it was definitely a fun show for sure. And this is a different show about Falcon Winter Soldier. I mean, the trailer just tells you it's like, hey, this is not the same thing. It's more of a traditional Marvel. Here's some action. Here's some quips. Here's some fun stuff. So, what was your expectation going into this show? Yeah, absolutely. My my expectations were very high uh, because WandaVision just was so out of left field, something that, you know, people that had seen all the movies and read the comics and seen some of the TV series, um, even the cartoon versions, um, just this was unlike anything we had seen before. It was a very bold uh, vision that they had, no pun intended, for uh, WandaVision. And um they they really knocked it out of the park in my mind. Um, I had very little complaints about that whole series. Uh, the only issue I had there was just what they kind of did with the villain, but we won't spoil anything if you're still catching up. Um, you know, other than that, my expectations really high. I I wanted it to be kind of like Wandavision was give us something that we're not expecting, um, and we can get into this a little bit. But the the first episode really kind of set the groundwork for it. I'm hoping that there's more to it, just like we saw with WandaVision. Yeah, let's not waste any more time. I'm going to put the good old spoiler warning up here for people, so. Gotta do it. 
All right, you have been warned. If you have not watched the premiere of Falcon the Winter Soldier, stop this podcast. Go pop on Disney Plus and watch the episode and come back. Otherwise, you're about to be spoiled. So you, you have been warned. It's not our fault yeah. anymore. <laughs> it's been out for 72 hours. Come on, let's go. Yeah, come on. It's a 47-minute block of your life. You can find time to do that. But anyway, yeah. let's get to these, this episode here. And I got to say, I'm am I the only one here? I felt a little underwhelmed. After I watched, I don't know. It's just the bar from Wavage being so high with all of the twists and turns and the excellent. I this going back to the more traditional Marvel, and this is a very slow burn of an episode. I felt like I was a little underwhelmed. You're not wrong. I, I felt the same way. I thought it was good, not great. Um, I think part of my issue is is that um, I'm more of a fan of the Wanda. Thor, Spider-Man, then Captain America, Iron Man, Hawkeye, Black Widow. So I'm more of a fan of the ones that kind of have those kind of uh, godly or mutated powers or um, just because I love the way that they represent those those characters. Uh, Captain America, obviously a super soldier, pretty cool, but still the, the action was more hand-to-hand combat and more like aerial combat using you know, um, planes and helicopters and things like that, and not so much pure, unexpected power. And um, so uh, just not as a huge fan of the traditional, you know, beat em up type fighting. Um, my expectations, as I said, were very high for it, but I was underwhelmed a little bit by the fact that instead of just that true one character that is getting the sole focus, I actually think it hurts the show a little bit uh, from an intro standpoint, to have two characters with lots of subplots. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure who to invest more of my time in and effort and care into. Is it Sam or is it Bucky, or the Winter Soldier? So um, I was a little underwhelmed, but I under, also understood that there was a lot of people that were a little, eh, what is this after the first episode of WandaVision? Honestly, a lot of people that I've spoken to, and I can see this, um, I was bought in right away. Um, just cause I love Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen, but, um, probably by episode three, let's see where we're at. If we feel the same way, I still think that they have some tricks up their sleeve. Um, they've invested a lot of time and money and marketing behind this. So I'm, I'm really hoping that, um, it does better, but if I was going to rank like a, out oh, here we go, um, you know, on a scale from one to 10, I would probably have given it maybe like a, like a seven. You know, as, a, as in terms of my like, wow, that was amazing. I can't wait for next week. I'm more so like, okay, I'll watch it again next week, but give me something to really go off of. I was really hoping that we get a little bit more bad guy in the first episode. They kind of just teased it. Yeah, I think this is one of those right now on your scale. Where I'm kind of like a six. I'm like, it was good. I'll watch it next week, but it's not going to be this the first thing I turn on on Friday morning. It's gonna be, maybe I'll wait till after lunch. Yeah. How did you feel about kind of the 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 two sides of, of how the episode is running, where you're seeing, um, you know, basically you're seeing the aftermath of Endgame a few months later. Um, you know, clearly this takes a place around or just after the time that WandaVision had come out. So what did you think really of the the difference between Sam's storyline and Bucky's storyline? I think it was in terms of the structure of the episode. I think the problem I had with the whole thing was that we get start off right away. We had that amazing action sequence at the beginning where Falcon is over in Tunisia trying to help the military pilot. We see the fun aerial fight. We get the 
awesome camera pan when you see the bad guys in the helicopter, the camera slowly pans to the right. You see he's sitting in the helicopter already. I was dying yeah. of laughter when that happened. But we go from cool. that to basically we have the ceremony with the retired Cap Shield, and then we sort of have like home beat of Cap of Sam storyline, home beat of Bucky storylines, cutting back and forth, back and forth. There was really, never really a flow to either story at that point. Yeah, and and I don't know why I feel like they needed to get us reinvested a little bit more into you know we knew that Bucky was was still struggling right we we've known that he was you know brainwashed for over for decades and you know he's still dealing with the repercussions but really hitting home at you know I I just I couldn't really buy into the whole Bucky storyline still and I said this to a couple of our friends one of your um, you know uh, frequent uh, podcast guests, uh, Nick Frietta. I was, I was talking to him offline about this and I I'm just having a hard time with the fact that, you know, nobody in Wakanda or, and I know Bucky was part of the blip. Um, but nobody addressed his, you know, his real mental health issues. I, I had a really hard time with the fact that by Bucky is ignoring Sam's text messages. Like they just, you know, came back. Um, they win, Essentially, obviously, they had a couple losses in Endgame, but, um, you know, they, they should be bonded and close together. You know, the last time we saw them was at the end of Endgame there when Cap is passing the shield. They were on good terms. You know, why are we now doing this thing where, you know, they're they're no longer talking and they're going to go back and they each got their problems. And I, I just it's like, why can't they be on the same page? But now there's a, a new serious threat that's going to test them in individual ways and make them prove that. They have to get the mantle of, of um, Captain America. And, you know, I, I get that it's the first episode and we might get there, but like, I, it's like they, they, every time we take a step forward, it feels like we're also taking a step back. So it's kind of like, we don't, we don't need to keep hitting the home on the same thing. It feels like Bucky has been moping around here uh, for a long time for, and not only just in, in our time, but also in the Marvel timeline. So um it, it, it just seems like he's he's got to get over that fact that, you know, um, he did all these bad things. So I don't know. I, the same way that they bounced back between these two storylines and um, it, it, it just felt like it was a little slow there. They could kind of have pushed things along a little bit more in the first episode. Yeah, in terms of the not putting it together right away, I get the story purpose of that because this these are two characters who never really interacted on their own. They always were interacting through Steve Rogers as Captain America and sort of like, if you and I were like not like good friends and we both, let's say use Nick as an example. If we were both friends with Nick and he was the common ground here. And then all of a sudden Nick just moves to Europe and we can't see him anymore. We might not be talking to each other all the time right. because we were friends because we were friends with Nick. I can get that point where like they have not had this time together and said, okay, like we haven't spent a ton of time, just the two of us. So maybe that's why they go off in their separate orbits and this event brings them together. But I think we could have done it a lot faster because at this point of the show, I mean, this felt a lot like the first episode of Defenders where we were sort of bringing together the four Netflix series. And the first episode was just, here's what's going on in Daredevil's world. Here's what's going on in Luke Cage's world. And then it took them like three episodes to bring everyone together. I don't want them to go at that same pace. Yeah, and I 100% agree with you. Um, the only thing I would say is that, you know, if Nikki did go off to Europe and you and I were still friendly, but not best friends, if you texted me, I'd still respond to you, you know, like it just seems ridiculous that like Bucky all of a sudden is so hurt that he's not going to respond to a text message from Sam. So when they had that line in the episode, I'm just like, oh man, like, like Bucky is that separated and isolated again. Like, you know, it just, it felt like they owed it to each other in honor of Cap 
to still stay in touch is, is my thing. I thought that they had the bond of Steve and losing Steve. Well, once again, we can talk about that, but we're not sure if we completely lost. He's, there's no confirmation of whether he's dead or alive still out there. So um, maybe they haven't lost him, but uh, I just figured that that was just strange that, um, and we know they're going to connect. It's called Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So maybe I'm harping on something that doesn't need to be uh, said here for too long, but I just felt like from a plot line, you don't need to back us up that far. Let's let's say, okay, that they're, they both have these separate home issues. You know, Bucky's trying to build a, a life now. Sam is trying to help his family and create a new legacy for his family. Totally fine with that. But, you know, let's, let's have them come back together. I would have loved something like um, at the S.H.I.E.L.D. Re- retiring ceremony there. Um, the two of them are both there and somebody in the crowd steps up and says, well, you know, you should challenge me for the title of Captain America. And, and that could have been the introduction of, of Walker, who, you know, we're going to find out at the end of the episode is the new Captain America. So, um, but long story short, I just felt like there was a couple things that seemed very slow. That's the problem with that is the show is called Falcon Winter Soldier. And we only have six episodes. It's not nine like WandaVision was. And we have spent one full right. episode of the six without them together. So you have to wonder what point you have to assume with the pacing, they're going to show up next, together next week. It's just... I feel like you could have gotten there a little faster. I mean, had them meet up at the end of this episode if you wanted to set this up. But, I mean, we're going to have still a little plot to go through for, to get them together. It's a battle, right, for Marvel and for Disney to, to try to, you know, fill the time as these next few movies continue their delayed production. I mean, Black Widow just got delayed um, again. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of figuring out this, this timeline. So I understand why, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're coming out with these series, which can t- they can release one episode a week and give you your fill. Um, but once again, I, I still had some issues there with the plot line itself. I'm, I, I enjoyed um, the one scene, though, and I don't know how you felt about it early in the episode where Bucky was having the therapy session. And you, I actually, I don't know if you did this, too. I paused my episode right when you could see his notebook of who he's uh, making amends with. Cause I was looking for certain names. If I like recognized any of them, I wrote them all down, but the fifth name on his list says Zemo. Yeah. So, and we all know that Zemo is going to be a big issue on here. So I'm curious if that was kind of like, I was looking all over for Easter eggs. I don't know. Were you the same way after WandaVision because there was a million Easter eggs in WandaVision and I couldn't find as many. I, I was trying to pause to see street signs and um, background things when Bucky is in, you know, kind of coming out of the restaurant. And I don't know. I did you feel the same way, or that is Marvel training your brain the same way as mine now, where it's like you're looking for these Easter eggs? I was looking for as much here as I was in WandaVision. WandaVision, I was always like kind of looking for like, oh, like what's this reference? Like, here, like where we meet. This is where the theorizers where I went off the rails in WandaVision. You're not doing a ton of theorizing here in this show, and I also think. In turn, I think the only one I was confused about because at that point when in Bucky's storyline when he's meeting with the older Asian man, I was confused if it was if it was his buddy from from uh, from his army unit as an older man. I was, but I don't think it is. Uh-huh. So I was that's the one I was confused about. I looked, I was, I don't think it was. Yeah, they didn't actually tell us why he was meeting him for lunch every Tuesday. Yeah, you know, it was just that he's walking. All of a sudden, he sees. It's like these two guys arguing in an alleyway and, oh, this is his best friend. Why is it his best? It, it felt like too much of um, uh, sloppy writing to just kind of throw. Bucky's not talking to Sam, but he's best friends with this old Asian man and he has lunch with them every Tuesday. And then, oh, we find out that, you know, they, um, 
you know, this happens to be the father of someone that we saw in that first sequence, his nightmare uh, that he kills. So it's kind of just like, you know, okay, okay. Is it a wow moment? Like, look at these. But once again, it, it was, there's certain things that if you're going to introduce these things to us as, as viewers, we, we deserve a proper background for them. And I, I didn't feel like that was one. So. Yeah. I think by far Bucky store on the weaker of the two, because there was not a lot yeah. there. Absolutely. Agreed. Cause like all he's doing the whole episode is he's in the therapy session. He's fun because you get to see him be like snarky and making fun of the, and having one line as the therapist takes a notepad out and gets him to talk. We have fun, like the bits where he, we see flash of him walking around saying, Oh, I'm performing my pen and say he's doing these badass action moves. That was funny. But apart from that, there was not a lot we really learned. We still, we saw him go on his date. That didn't go too great for him. We've seen he has nightmares. He's lying about it. That's really all we got from Bucky this week. Yeah. It felt more like just, falcon with the winter soldier like the first episode because it was a lot of sam and look i, I think it's cool of uh, sam is you know on the on the grants in the grand scheme of marvel characters like you know if if you just ask you know an average person are they gonna say like oh my favorite character is falcon you know or or you know it you, even if you ask somebody who, who read a lot of comics, um, they're not going to come up with Falcon right away. So it's interesting that they have chosen Sam to be this lead character. Um, I'm okay with it um, because perfectly honest, I think the acting is good. And I think he's got a cool wing set. I thought that, that was really cool. You mentioned that first action sequence. I, I thought that um, that set the, the bar pretty high. I think uh, Falcon's wings are, are kind of cooler than Cap Shield, to be frankly. I feel like I want to still see what else they can do. Um, but you know, when he kind of like wraps up and and protects himself from the bullets, I'm like, dang, that's that's useful. Um, and just the aerial sequences. I mean, Marvel does such a good job with those. So I want to see, you know, I want to see Sam fly. Um, but once again, th there was a lot of stuff that felt like you were watching like you know, a, a more of just a, like a drama TV show a guy goes home. He's trying to help his family. They can't get a bank loan to, to keep the boat business going. It's like, what are we doing here? This is Falcon and the Winter Soldier. This is Marvel. Like, you know, we don't, I know it's like a legacy thing, but you've got a bigger legacy out there than your personal, you know, family issue situation. Like you're trying to decide whether you just decided to turn down the mantle of Captain America. So it's like, did it feel necessary? And I don't know. I just felt like they could do other things than, than have us dive into Sam's background. So I don't know. I did like seeing Don Cheadle though. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. I mean, as you said, with Bucky, there's really one arc, the whole, his thing. Sam had three different things going on here. We had the whole subplot with him turning the shield down. We had his family drama and we had the, the whole terrorist subplot where he, where one of his uh, army colleagues is basically tracking a terrorist cell. That was the, the three things going on there. I'll start with the, the one with him turning the shield down, his conversation with Rhodey after the ceremony. I do think it was very cool to see, like, two of, like, the very few, like, before Black Panther, two of the original, like, black characters in the MCU, like, have this conversation about, like, what it means to, like, for their place in the Marvel Universe. And it, it did, they did a good job here sort of addressing the album of, hey, like, you know what, like, maybe this country is not ready to see a black man carry the Captain America shield. And Sam, like, implies that that's sort, sort of the reason why he didn't take it. Yeah, and that honestly, that's I'm pretty sure that was depicted in the comic books as well. So that's straight out of what was done in the comics. I think 
that they're setting us up for the bigger plot. We, I, 100%, I think Sam absolutely should be Captain America and pick up the mantle because both Bucky and Sam in the comics both assume the role at various points. The comics are so long and drawn out. Like Marvel has to decide, like, what are we going to do? There's a lot of like decisions they just have to make and subplots they got to get rid of. But it should absolutely be Sam. So maybe that's why they gave us more of his background in the first episode. And they're setting us up for more of him. And, you know, Bucky is going to be supportive, but he's not going to be the guy. Uh, He's going to help win the fight. Um, But yeah, very much. I I think from I I think it's cool to see Rhodey as his mentor of sorts, encouraging him to to have the mantle. And, you know, we're going to see more of Don Cheadle's character as we as we go along, because I'm pretty sure he's starring in one of the future uh, Disney Plus series, right? I think yeah, it's called Armor Wars or something like that. Yeah, he has his own. He's going to be the star of an Armor Wars. So from what I've gathered here, he's sort of like just like a supporting guy. He might show up here and there. He's not going to be there every episode. Yeah, I hope we get more of those. I hope we get more cameos of other characters that pop up and surprise us that we've seen or, um, you know, I haven't heard any rumors or anything, but uh, the same way they did with Kat Denning's character um in wandavision yeah you know we hadn't seen her since what the, the second thor movie yeah in the dark world yeah right 2013 and, uh, yeah something like that yeah um i think know, i would love to, i'd love to get more of those kinds of characters um that we've seen in the past introduced so this new agent um that's out in the field fighting this terrorist group um you know from what I understand, I, I don't remember too much because it was I didn't read all the comics, but I'm assuming he's a bigger role later on. And I don't know whether they're going to make him that or they're just going to leave him as a good contact. But you're right. It seems like this first big issue um, for Sam is is whether or not to hold the, the, the mantle. And it's like Captain America gave you the shield like, you know, use he if he felt you were worthy enough, you were worthy enough. So giving it up just. I'm just like, I don't know. I think he should have kept it. And and then there should have been somebody who challenged him for it, not just to give it up and it's given somewhere else. And now he's got to fight to prove it. So I just think that that plot line um, could have gone a different way. Um, we'll see how it goes. Maybe I'll be eating my words in a couple episodes, but you're right. We only get six episodes and it's not like they're like Game of Thrones hour and a half episodes here. So, you know, they got to get to it pretty quick. Yeah, they do. I think we'll, come, we'll circle back to the, the Captain America reveal at the end of the episode. The second thing I wanted to hit on was obviously like the terrorist plot. It was a cool action sequence when the, when the, the soldier Torres is up, goes undercover and you have all the fights of the guys in the masks and he gets basically his ass handed to him by the ter- by the head of the Flag Smashers. And I think very, very chilling like, iconography there considering like what's been going on in this country. And Marvel unironically has a timely like villainous like reference here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, as soon as I saw the face masks and where they were in the world, it made me think of V for Vendetta yeah. a little bit. Like, I love that heist idea of everybody wearing the same mask at the same time and not knowing who's doing what. Like that that was chilling, actually. That scene a little bit, and um, just just how that all of that sequence went down. Um, I'm I'm very very curious uh, that chaos that's that's going on over there um i'm curious to see how big a theme that is and whether that's the introduction the introduction of baron zemo or um reintroduction i mean or whether there's some other super soldier because obviously we saw 
um, that agent getting his butt kicked by somebody who had crazy strength and crazy speed and power and reflexes. So um, I'm really curious to see who's behind the mask there. The way that they had the long hair too, it made me think, you know, this is just like a new version of the Winter Soldier. So are we going to get a Winter Soldier versus new version of it? Um, are we getting a quick glimpse of, is it really Hydra behind it or some other political power? So it's very timely, as you said, uh, kind of that mass chaos in the streets type feel. Um, but once again, I'm, I'm curious who was behind, who's the one that, you know, really was punching people, you know, through city streetlights. Yeah. Um, and, and that's going to be another one of our bad guys. So. Yeah, it also has a lot of Mr. Robot vibes, too, in terms of how, like, the hacker group there always used to use the Monopoly Man mask to sort of, like, hide their own chaos and acts going on. I think that was interesting. I think the Sam home life thing, I get why they put it in there because it's something we don't really explore in the Marvel Universe. It's like, you know, what's it like for, like, the family of the superhero? And you get that interesting point at the bank where, like, he's, uh, the banker's like, oh, this is awesome, you're Falcon, but I'm not helping you. Like, and it's just, like, a cold reality of, like, hey, like, you saved the world, but doesn't mean I'm going to help you with your business. And I just just think it's very fascinating because it's somebody's joked on Twitter. It's like, hey, Tony Stark didn't leave these guys any money when he when he uh, bit the bit the farm. Yeah, I was kind of thinking about that too. I'm like, it it's never been addressed, you know, whether they were being paid or compensated in some way for for their services saving the world multiple times. Um, so I thought that that was clever because that never has been addressed. Tony Stark's really the only one that we know has money um, or did. Uh, I, I think what you said is interesting. Um, the We've explored, you know, Wanda's past now. We have. We, we looked into her, the trauma that her and Pietro grew up with. We, we've explored that life. We don't know her current home life, or at least we, we kind of do, or her vision of it. Um, but then, you know, we've looked a little bit into, um, you know, obviously Thor, we know a little bit more about his family. Um, I think we know a little bit about Peter Parker, but you're right. This was different because Sam isn't a mutant side of things or, or muted. He, he is just purely a guy with a normal non, yes, he is a superhero, but we've always thought of Sam as more of a support than like one of the big five that could really like get things done. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. We've, we, Marvel is exploring some of these family lives. We saw it with Hawkeye. Um, we saw that in Endgame and, and Affinity War as well. So they've taken little shots, um, where they try to bring the family in. I'm assuming this new Black Widow movie is, is going to address, um, you know, obviously Scarlett Johansson's character's background. Um, they've, it's been represented multiple times, uh, but we're going to get really, you know, her, her full, um, upbringing as well so this is just different you're right it felt different than the way that we've looked at the family members of these superheroes for a long time now and I, I i get it it just ate up a lot of the episode that's what bothered me it was like a good 15 minutes in an hour-long episode so yeah i was like 45 minute episode basically 45 yeah you're right because after it seems like they always throw us off you see the runtime. But it oh you never know when it's actually going to end because then there's a long credit sequence and you have to watch the whole credits to see if there's any spoilers in it. I um I found that there's only one Easter egg, but we can talk about it at the end. That's in the credits, so there's no post credit scene. Um, I'm assuming we're going to get them because there's only six episodes, so make sure you watch the credits as well. 
Yeah, as I always tell people, when when you, when you have these Disney Plus shows or Netflix shows, like, always watch till they ask you to watch the next episode. Because at that point, there's nothing coming. Yeah, yeah. And you got to look at every little thing, too, if you really, if you care. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're never going to put in anything that they won't address later at some point. So, or it comes out on the internet. So... Yeah. Also, we get we get to the point at the end of the episode where we have the reveal that they have a new Captain America, and it is this guy. I forget what what was his name again. Was it Russell or Walker? Uh, his, the the character who who plays him is a guy named Wyatt Russell. Oh, that's why I was um, kind of confused. And he's he's been in uh, a few a few things, uh, TV movies that you probably recognize him in, and he has the face of a really good bad guy. And I think he's a really good actor just from, from what I've seen him in. Um, I recognized him right away. So I'm hoping that he's as good. John, I believe the guys, the character in the comics, his name is John Walker. Yes. And um, it's in the comics from what I remember. And I did a quick look up on this because I couldn't remember. I remember the character he's, he plays, it was, um, U.S. agent, actually, I think is what he's all he has other mantles that he goes by. And he's more of like a uh, not a super soldier, but more of a he does the bidding of of politicians and the government and whether or not their intentions are good or bad. That's up for debate. So he's more of, a, a you know, kind of a vessel for powerful political people. Uh, to go out and do his thing. I He has both been an ally and an enemy to Captain America in the comics. So once again, Marvel is messing with us. We don't know whether um, he's going to be a bad guy um, or be out with a hidden agenda. Uh, is he another Hydra agent in disguise? We don't know uh, what's going to happen here, but I have to assume that there's going to be something that happens very quick, Mike, that connects the dots between the Flag Smashers, this new Captain America, um, and whatever these, you know, we got a little hint that there's these political or, or governmental agents that um, might be infiltrated by Hydra. That seems to be a recurring theme in all of the Captain, Mar Mar uh, Captain America movies, um, is that none of the guys that seem like good guys are actually good guys. So we'll see if Sam and Bucky can deal with it. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting too because I think this sets up a good like point for Sam to get him over as well because he retired the shields and said, hey, no one else should have this thing. And then the government turned around and says, you know what, like, we're giving it to another white dude. We're not going to like kind of hit you like, we didn't want to give it to you, but we'll give it to generic agent white guy who looks like he should be on the wheeze box like that i think will be a motivating factor for sam a little bit i, I and rightfully so um what's interesting to me is that sam was selfless i i don't think that they said you can't have it i just think that sam made the right moral decision uh and then the government decided to do their bidding so i once again very timely to what's going on you're right um the writing for marvel they've always addressed in a very subtle clever way what's kind of the beat of what's going on in the world um and i really do hope that we get to the point where it's sam that that carries the mantle um you know bucky's a great character but we need we do need more african-american black superheroes um just just for the simple sake that they deserve that time and title and sam in the comics is 
you know, a fantastic Captain America for many, many years. So um, I think the Falcon is cool. Um, I like the wings and I hope that they decide to feature those more often. Uh, but rightfully so, somebody's got to carry that shield and, and it should be Sam. Yeah, I think it will be too. And I think that's about it for the episode. I do wonder though, like considering how the pandemic has changed things and this is just going to be the first show because this was supposed to come out first and then it was supposed to be WandaVision. I wonder if we're lower on this, and if we had just lived in a world where WandaVision came out second, this came out first. I wonder if our our expectations would have been different. Yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder if um, uh, you know, I, I you can go on on Disney Plus and watch. Um, they have a show on there called um, Avengers Assembled, and it is the making of WandaVision. And uh, they interview all the cast. They show you how they made the show, how they filmed in front of a live audience. It was basically like putting on a play uh, for the first few episodes. And then they talk about the transition and you can just tell there was so much time and care and effort that went into the making of WandaVision. Um, maybe it was so good or so unusual that they felt like that, that maybe when they saw the final recordings of Falcon Winter Soldier, it wasn't as good and wasn't gonna really they needed to start these settle up these individual series off with a bang. Uh, and plus, WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier are very close in timeline. Um, they're both dealing with the after effects of, of Endgame. So they're probably within months of each other. So I think that they probably looked at it and said, you know, there's a lot of expectation for, for the series to come out. Maybe they decided to say WandaVision was, was better. So let's put it first and and then Falcon and Winter Soldier come out and then we'll kind of sandwich it with what we're going to get next with. Do you remember what the next one is after this? Is it Loki that's it's, supposed it's Loki. to come out? Yeah, it's Loki. I, I have really high expectations for Loki because he is, and I don't think I'm just saying this, but I think he is probably the most entertaining of all the characters that they've introduced. And Tom Hiddleston is so good. So it's like, um, you know, that one I'm going to put up, like that better hit me with a nine right off the bat. So this one, I, I, I had high expectations, but that was just because of WandaVision. Maybe I should have kind of dialed it back a little bit and, and maybe a, a seven is a good score for, for what we got between the two of those. So, yeah, I think part of this also was like the original plan was I could see this sort of being the companion piece to Black Widow, where they're two similar types of product. Whereas you could see also we're going to flow from WandaVision to Loki. So it's more sense thematically. I think this is sort of a point where we had, Production was further along on WandaVision. They had to do more work on Falcon Winter Soldier because they had to do a lot of overseas shootings. It's one of those where WandaVision was done first. So, okay, we're going to get something out instead of pushing everything back even further on the timeline because that's probably how it Black Widow. I mean, they said recently that they're going to wait until the last second inside. They're going to leave it on May 7th. They're pushing back a couple of months. So I hope they leave yeah. it alone because I feel like the further you get away from the timeline this movie is set in, because it's between Civil War and Infinity War. I mean, the further right. away you're getting away from those movies... I mean, yeah. the, the, the risk she you're did. losing it. So, yeah, she died. She, um, she died. And, and she had, like, the, this time period was in 2017, basically, we're talking about. So we're talking about almost four years later. What point did the casual audience not care anymore? Right. And, and you know, it, it's very it's very much, um, uh, I think people will, will take whatever they can get because we're so starved for content. And everybody that's a true Marvel fan of the series and movies is probably so, I felt this way a little bit. I like, you know, look, did I love, you know, Robert Downey Jr. I was like, we got a lot of Tony Stark over the years. Um, 
his character wasn't as important to me as maybe Thor or Spider-Man um, or even Hulk for that, um, for that matter. But I, I'm just, I was worried. I was worried about what the future was going to be and whether it was going to be as good. Um, and I still think by the fact of putting out the Black Widow movie, um, it's still bringing up these feelings that we had when, when Tony Stark was still alive. And I feel like we need to move on from it. So by putting out a movie where a character who died at a pivotal moment uh, in order to save the world, that happened now several years ago, not just in the MCU, but in real, real life. So I'm with you on that. I feel like we need to kind of address her standalone movie, take it because we're all starved for content. Uh, but once again, these new series are now really moving us ahead and it's, it's going to be weird to go back. So um, I, I feel like they need to put it out on May 7th. Yeah, well. if, even if it means you're doing the split model, I think you have to put it out. I think, you can, I think you can push every movie, keep pushing every movie back to try and get Max out of the money. I think at some point you're going to have to bite the bullet and just put it out. Yeah, we're moving on from these characters. If a few years from now when we've introduced all these other characters that they're going to do um, and they want to just give us a surprise cameo, you know, Chris Evans has decided to pick up the shield again and be Captain America and surprise everybody in one of these big movies. Great. But right now we're Dr. Strange. We're Wanda. Who knows where white, though I don't want to say spoilers alert, but where white vision is, um, you know, we're, we're moving ahead with this different set of characters and X-Men are going to be obviously introduced uh, to finish up here, you know, Easter egg or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I don't know if you read this, but there is a spoiler-ish or lead-in in the uh, credits of the first episode that I saw online, where uh, if you watch, there's a split second where a little quote kind of comes up, and in the quote, it references a city that is critical in the X-Men timeline, uh, and I don't necessarily know the origins of it, but everybody was freaking out when they, they saw this one name of a city. It's a very specific city. Um from the comics and it's referencing, are we introducing X-Men into the Marvel universe? Everybody's been waiting for it. And there was obviously, you know, when Evan Peters character, his version of Pietro Maximoff was introduced in, in, in WandaVision, everybody's like, oh, this is gonna be it. You know, like here's the crossover. But then we found out that that was just a, a fake. So- It was a real boner. Um, yeah, it was a real boner, you're right. <laughs> Um, for those that haven't seen WandaVision, um, take a look, but that was supposed to be it. Cause you know, he was the Quicksilver in, in that version. And, um, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to, to have that crossover at some point and it's been teased and teased and teased. So now they're even teasing us in these series by dropping the names of X-Men related cities, uh, where big fights and sequences have happened. So, um, you know, it, Maybe they're just doing it so that people like us are, are stay invested in it. Uh, but hopefully there's there's something to it because I love the X-Men. Um, Gambit is still my favorite character of all time. So I would love to see more. And I hated the way they portrayed him back in those other X-Men movies. So um, I love Remy LeBeau. I was, I was hoping that uh, Channing Tatum was rumored to do a standalone uh, Gambit movie and it never happened. So because the directors quit on it and the writing team had a struggle with it. So I still want to see some more Remy LeBeau. Yeah, we so that's my. Who knows? They're gonna keep. You're just gonna troll the fans until they actually do it. But I think that's a good place to stop here, Dan. I want to thank you for all the time. Really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can you follow social media? Keep up some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. Um, active on Twitter. NFL free agency right now. I've been 
sitting here waiting for the Colts to do something. And other than signing a couple of their own guys, they've done nothing. Um, we have a serious issue at, at pass rush on the edge, what most teams do, and we don't have a starting left tackle at the moment, and we have no depth on the offensive line. So glaring holes uh, for this team, and I am active on Twitter uh, at DMART207 uh, or Out of Town Fan Pod. Uh, you can follow either one of those accounts, but, uh, other than that, thanks for having me on, Mike. This is, this is fun. I'm hoping that this series, um, just gets better and better, uh, and that we're, you know, we've now the bar has been set a little bit lower and I, I'm, I, let me say this, I'm an open door for them to, to pull me in and, and make it even better than WandaVision. So we'll see what they do next week. All right. We will see Dan. Thanks again. Thanks. All right, that will do for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Troy Moriello, for hopping on, breaking down the NCAA tournament, getting us set for the Sweet 16. I also want to thank Alan Austin for doing our fantasy baseball preview here. I also want to thank Dan Martini for spending the last 40-some minutes of me breaking down the Mira Falcon, the Winter Soldier. Fun show. All good stuff there. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at what the Yankees' overday roster could look like, and has taken a hit. Zach, Wilson, Zach Britton is out. Justin Wilson's getting an MRI on his shoulder. Check out the blog over justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all our usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering on any of those podcast platforms. You can find all episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. That make this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips, on YouTube. All the individual conversations on this episode are on my YouTube channel. So if you want to check out just my chat with Troy about the NCAA tournament, check it out there. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Coming up next on the podcast, coming up on Monday, we have our opening day special coming up. You have Major League Baseball seasons coming up there. Baseball people here. We'll do some over-unders and more. Until I hope you have a better week than Buckeyes fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.